Recording in progress. Good evening. Um, that's a call the Monday, April 11th, 2022. Planning board meeting to session. Uh, board member T, would you mind leading the flag salute? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Um, staff, please do roll call. Sure. Uh, President Seheba has a excused absence, as is a board member Cisneros. Um, Board, and uh, board member Rothenberg. So I'll, I'll start with uh, board member Curtis. Here. Hom. Here. Ruiz. Here. And Teague. Here. And we have a quorum. Thank you. Moving on to any agenda changes and discussions? No agenda changes mm -hmm. from staff. Thank you. Moving on to agenda number. Um, Agenda item number five, oral communications. Anyone may address the board on the topic, not on the agenda under these items by submitting a speaker information slip subject to the three minute time limit. Do we have any? Um... Recording Let's in progress. On to um, a regular agenda item. First item um, is agenda item number 7A, um, 1435 Webster Street use permit. Um, staff, do you have a presentation? Um, Brian McGuire here with uh, planning staff. I have a, just a brief staff report, um, but not Please a PowerPoint. Um, so 1435 Webster Street is a use permit for use of the parking lot for outdoor commercial entertainment events. Um, the applicants, the West Alameda Business Association. Um, just to summarize, staff is recommending approval of conditional use permit with limitations um, for WABA, the West Alameda Business Association to use the Webster and Taylor lot um, for a variety of events, events, including some live concerts with amplified music. Um, on July 26, 2021, the planning board had a public hearing, received comment and approved a temporary use permit. Um, this was last summer to continue uh, some sort of COVID related activities that had been going on in, in the lot um, since 2020. Um, the draft resolution before you tonight uh, in the use for the use permit is updated slightly, but based on that um, temporary use permit um, with very similar conditions. Um, just to summarize a few of the conditions on the use permit, um, which allows outdoor commercial entertainment events. Um, you know, we think this is a good use for the area to help create a vibrant commercial district um, and help those businesses as they're continuing to cover recover um, from the pandemic. Um, and we think generally um, it's a pretty good use for um, a commercial district with some conditions. Um, some of those include that no more than three events per week are permitted um, between the days Thursday through Sunday. Events must end by 8 p.m. 
um, on Thursdays and Sundays and 9 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays. Um, a big topic of conversation with these events has been, and likely tonight maybe, um, the use of amplified sound. So live band, DJs, background music, et cetera, um, are limited to no more than three calendar days per month. Um, amplified music has to stop by 8 p.m. and meet specific um, sort of measurable um, noise standards. We've sort of um, clarified some of these standards are a little, little bit easier to understand and easier to enforce um, than what was in the temporary use permit before. Um, the events are still limited. Ticketed events are limited to 220 tickets per event. Um, the same conditions about mitigating and managing impacts in the neighborhood apply. Um, they need to um, all other events need to comply with the Alameda Noise Ordinance and provide a schedule and contact information to neighbors who have issues or concerns. Um, and just once again, we're um, recommending approval and um, staff is here to answer any questions. Thank you, Brian. Um, now I'm gonna open up for um, board member questions. And again, a reminder, this is just for questions on the specific agenda. We will have a period for comments after public um, comments. And I believe the first hand up was board member T. Thank you. Um, I have a few questions. So um, on page three of the draft resolution, it has that the applicant is monitoring, recording the noise level at every event. Is that a continuous recording for the entire duration or are those points in time? Um, I would defer a little bit to the applicant on how they were um, implementing that last year, but the condition um, is uh, just, this is under, item four, Amplified Sound. Um, those four, I think are- section C on yeah. the next page. Yeah, those would, um, I think the expectation is not necessarily that they, um, you know, if there's a concern or they, they're taking measurements, um, I don't know whether, I don't think it's written with the expectation that they would be continuously monitoring, but you know, if they're doing noise checks or doing routine checks throughout an event. Okay. Yeah, I, I can supplement that. Um, so uh, as a result of the board's approval of the use permit last year, um, how WABA handled it was to uh, measure the ambient noise um, before the event. And then also, I believe it was uh, once per hour during during the course of that day. Okay, did at any time we request those readings from last year? We have those readings from last year. Okay. Um, we're limiting the ones with tickets to 220. What is the limit for the no ticket events? Um, I think uh, there, there were some other events where they had people coming and going throughout the day, but I don't think they ever had more, um, more than that capacity at any one time. Okay, throughout the document in the staff report, um, we say, comply with the noise ordinance for all non-amplified events? Why aren't we just saying for all events? Um, I think there's some, the, the way the noise ordinance is crafted, there's some difficulty in a measuring it. And it, the standard it sets is essentially that the um, events cannot be louder than the, the ambient 
sort of surrounding noise of the area. Um, and so it was going to be because of the way it was is written, um, difficult to sort of hold them uh, to that standard. Um, and so we wanted to have a specific standard that is much cl more clear for the community and for staff and for the applicant um, to be able to go by that we thought was reasonable based on. So are these decibel numbers higher than what the standard says? Yes, they are. But it's a, a realistic reflection of what the sound would be. When I, once you have amp, uh, amplified noise, you're going to be above the ambient noise level. And the ordinance sets the standards at the ambient noise level. So what we've done is we've looked at um, uh, the sort of a reason, as Brian mentioned, the reasonable sound levels when you have amplified sound at these events and what that would be typically in a business district. So last year they were held to what standard? They were held to the noise ordinance, which is basically the references the ambient noise level. And so in our readings from last year, um, they, they were averaging, as soon as you have amplified sound, they were, you're going to be louder than the ambient um, noise level. Okay. So, but last year they were, for all of their events, meeting the noise standard. Uh, they, they were not with amplified sound. The average, amp the average noise levels with amplified sound um, is higher than the ambient noise level set in the noise ordinance. Okay, thank you. Thank you, um, board member Hom. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for the staff report and uh, uh, board member T kind of was in the same kind of same path I was thinking really about the noise uh, issues. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand uh, what changes. The staff report mentions that there are some modifications to the conditions based on the experience at the prior year events. And I assume most of these changes relate to noise. So can you summarize what the changes are? It seems like one of the changes as already mentioned was how the noise gets measured uh, more specifically uh, relating to amplified note sound. But were there also some changes relating to, for instance, how late the amplified music or noise can occur or what, what changes were there versus uh, the prior conditions? I didn't check and compare. Sure, sure. thank you for that question. Um, I think um, as Alan discussed the, the sort of being more clear and, and realistic with the amplified noise measurements and standards was the, the main one. The times um, of operation were not modified. They were, they were the same as what you approved mm -hmm. last summer. Um, you know, there were some sort of clarity edits that needed to be made in order to change this from a temporary use permit to a use permit that we think is hopefully a little bit more um, sort of a realistic, hopefully, you know, shot at balance and, and a good policy um, going forward so that you aren't faced with this question um, repeatedly. So there's some some just adjustments there. But then I think the other main thing besides just the, the noise decibel levels um, was specifying that amplified sound is only permitted three events per month, whereas before it didn't, it sort of didn't distinguish um, between events because they all had to comply with the noise ordinance, um, mm -hmm. which 
you know, as we discussed a little bit, was was a difficult um, standard to to enforce and and sort of apply. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we're sort of trying to strike that balance between having, you know, okay, up to three days a month you can do events with amplified noise, um, but we're limiting that to a total of three hours per day um, for the event. And, and then and three if, per if, month, right? Yeah, three hours per day, three days per month with amplified noise. Um, and then anything um, beyond that can be, you know, you can have sort of a, you know, a little market or fundraiser or, mm-hmm. you know, um, yoga class or whatever is happening out there that that they may schedule. Um, and but those events would not have amplified noise. Mm-hmm. What about parking? Were there any changes to the parking conditions? There was no changes to the parking conditions. Okay. All right. Thanks. Those are my questions. Thank you, board member, member Curtis. Thank you. Um, both both my colleagues have touched on the noise, and and I just like to know, you know, where this eighty five and one hundred seven decibels. When we did the noise studies at Harbor Bay, when we were building out over there with jet engine noises. Uh, 85 decibels was enough to to literally cause tremendous amount of inconvenience for people at at living in the houses that were close to the flight path. So if, if you're talking about 85 decibels coming out of the this and, and 107 decibels at the origin, you're talking about something that that approaches a jet engine noise. And um, what what was the basis of the what was the basis of the 107 seven decibels? I, I, I think that's awfully high, and I think it's going to create problems. But what, 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 what? Where did the number come from? 107 decibels and 85 decibels. I, I can address that. So uh, these numbers are based on the readings from last year, uh, when when the um, when there were concerts. Uh, the the measurements came back when you're standing at the property line at at 85. So that basically is you know 25 feet away from the speaker. It's averaging at 85. But when you're staying, when you're taking the noise device, your, your phone or whatever app, and you're standing next to the speaker within feet of the speaker, it's going to be much louder at than 85. So, um, and I think that's, and that's where the 107 comes in. Uh, we pulled that standard also from the uh, Santa Monica noise ordinance. You know, Santa Monica has a standard for its Third Street Promenade, which is a, you know, a very vibrant commercial business district that I think many, many cities um, and many business districts aspire to. Yeah. So, you know, we, we basically realize, I mean, I think the bottom line is what we want the public and planning board to know is if you're going to prove concerts here, the amplified sound is going to be loud. That sound measurement will average at 85. If you're 25 feet away, about 107 when you're standing next to the speaker. We want to, we just want to be very realistic about what those numbers are. And we, you know, the staff recommendation, as Brian explained, is that we're going to limit the amplified duration, sound duration to three, you know, the, the three, uh, three calendar days um, and the hours that, that, that we've explained. So, you know, again, it's just coming down to being realistic. Hey, if there's going to be Amplified sound, it'll be loud. There's no such thing as a quiet concert. When you're going to have a concert, there's going to be speakers. We're, you're going to hear it, but we're going to limit the duration for um, when that's going to happen. Thank you. Um, board member T. 
So are the speakers required to be 25 feet from the property line? Um, there is not a condition. There is a, um, let me see if I can look at the, there, there is a site plan that was submitted and the, the stage and the speakers are sort of, there's sort of two columns if you're running north-south. The, the stage area is closer to Webster Street. So um, if you're the Califia Taqueria, you're uh -huh. closer than 25 feet from the property line. If you're talking about the residential properties to the west, um, that should be more, um, more than 25 feet, I believe, from where the speakers are. Okay. But it's not did codified in the condition. Did you guys consider the dealing with it, the sound level at the property line versus the distance from noise source? Because that's typically what our noise ordinance deals with. Yeah, we can do that, but um, we won't have a. Uh, I mean, the, the basis with the numbers would be would could be based on the readings from last year. So the answer is yes. We we could change it to the property line, but we just want to a way of measuring, distinguishing how close you are to the speaker and what that reading would be. Okay, thank you. Thank you, and I have two questions. Um, one is uh, during the um, temporary use permit period that we authorized uh, latter part of last year, after is authorization, do we have, did we receive any noise complaints? I'll defer to Alan. I think he has better better handle on that question. Yeah, we received uh, two complaints from the same neighbor um, about the amplified sounds. Yes. Okay. And and then um, and this is kind of a kind of procedural question. Is I know what's on the table now is not another temporary use permit. But is it possible to authorize um, a temporary use permit for another year, rather than make it a permanent use permit? I, I think you have a lot of latitude in in what your approval is. If you decide to approve it, um, you can condition it um, within reason. I think um, in that manner, if you like. Yeah, thank and, you. And if I may supplement, um, what this board has done in the past is you can. Um, uh, require a review with after mm -hmm. maybe the first year or the first season um, to see if the uh, decibel standards are appropriate and whether the time durations are appropriate. Um, you could certainly do that as part of as part of approving use permit conditions. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, do we have any more board questions, clarifying questions? Okay, now, um, oh, oh, oh. yes, go ahead, board member. Yes, sorry, sorry to jump in. Just, just propped in my question uh, based on Alan's response. Um, so what would consider to be a violation of the proposed noise uh, condition? I mean, is it, would it be any one event that exceeds this or is it three events? I'm just trying to understand the, the one year stipulation provides some safeguard, but part of my question is, if, you know, at what, at what point would, would staff consider the use permit and violation if there's, you know, you know, repeated violations of the noise ordinance? 
I believe we have a noise condition, I would say. I believe we have a condition, the resolution that speaks to, uh, this is again, standard practice when it comes to uh, noise complaints. It's the sort of our, what I call the three, three strikes rule. If there's three verified complaints, then we would schedule a hearing before the planning board for um, uh, revocation. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add to that. I think um, because this this is not um, was not drafted as a temporary use permit, there's not a specific um, number, but there is the same sort of revocation language that the use permit may be modified or revoked um, by the board or city council. Um, and one of those conditions is if the use is operated in violation of the conditions. I think, I think we, you know, um, whether it's three in a season or you know um, what the whatever the situation is, I think we expect the um, to sort of try to have people, um, for the most part, be, you know, good neighbors and working together. And generally, it, it's pretty clear to, you know, if there's a problem that's ongoing that we need to bring it back, whether, you know, whether it was two in a short period or three over a year or what or whatever that number is, I think we have some, some flexibility as currently crafted. But if you wanted to, to be more specific, um, you know, especially if there's sort of a one year review or something, you could you could add that. Okay. No, thanks. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, now let's open up for public comments. Okay, we have two, uh, two speakers. The first is Melissa Milan. Hi. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, well, thank you for allowing me to speak again tonight. Um, hold on one second. Mom, turn your phone down. Sorry. We are on the same property <laughs> and um, she's in my house because I had to help her with technology. So I was hearing an echo. Um, thank you for hearing my comments. Um, last season with the temporary use permit was awful for us. We had the noise in our house multiple days and got no peace again now I, I'm not sure how this sounds like it's not temporary I don't know how long this permit lasts um, but for the neighbors to endure amplified sound coming out of that lot indefinitely is just not fair for our community I'm not familiar with Santa Monica Third Street Promenade but I mean if that's what you guys are trying to make this lot become then I mean I, I definitely would want to move from this area because I, I can't put up with that for a lifetime um, I just hope that you understand how inconvenienced we are by this music um, three days a week I see you're um, decreasing the days and the time but it's still three calendar days a month of music coming and noise coming into our home and these people who are asking for the permit are not abiding by the laws and the rules they've been having events out there without a permit the Encinal high school band was out there um, a couple weeks ago for the fundraiser and of course i'm not you know i'm an alum from there i'm not going to say anything about that but it was band music from 2 p.m to about 6 p.m um, so I just asked that if you were living in this community, is this what you'd want to go on? 
that's all my comments for now. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Marie Malam. Let's um, reset the timer. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, I'm in shock listening to this going on again this year. Uh, I prepared something I wanted to say, and I'm just going to say that, but I am so upset about this. Uh, here I go. Uh, last year, I wrote many emails to both the staff and the board. I even sent cards via snail mail. Uh, I'm a woman in my 70s. In all my life, I have never had to deal with anxiety. But last summer was very stressful. I felt violated with music that I don't even like coming into my house, even with the TV on. And it was every weekend. I had anxiety. I lost sleep trying to find out uh, who at City Hall could help us. The pandemic is still with us, but the restrictions have been lifted. All venues for live music is open. No need for concerts at our corner parking lot. Please, please ban all amplified sound. It is violating our peace. Community events, school fundraisers, art walks, street fairs and yoga can all be done without amplified sound. I'm scheduled to have heart surgery. I don't wanna need a need to added stress. In my months of recovery, I need peace and quiet. Please, I'm begging you, last year, 12 of my neighbors wrote emails to the board and the staff, but we were not heard. And we're still not being heard. I can hear it from you. You're just trying to move on like this is no problem. But we were not heard last year. Instead, the board extended the original contract with two more months. What a slap in the face. And we're still being slapped in the face like we don't matter. I don't get it. I know a couple of members came out to hear the, how loud the sound voice. What about the rest of you? Did you ever come out to hear how it sounds? Did you ever walk around and see what it sounds like to live corner from that place and, and having to listen to it? Eight o'clock is not late, but it's every weekend. And now it's gonna be three weekends of, of, the, of the month. I mean, I don't get it. How, where do you get this to be something that the community wants? I, I, it's not, it's crazy. And we need harmony. Thank and we you. need support. Thank please. you. Thank you, your time's up. Next speaker, please. Dina, let us know. Hello, good afternoon. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I just wanted to say, um, I, I was the coordinator, the leader on the uh, event a couple weekends ago for Encinal High School. And um, 
uh, correction, the band played from 2.30 to about 3.45. But I just want to say it was such a wonderful time to be able to have the community come out during the day um, and have an event where the kids could raise money, where the families can gather, where people can see each other and talk. Um, We were very respectful of the parking situation and for, um, for WABA to allow us to come in and to use the space. It was a wonderful event. And my husband, he even said he had a great time and he's usually kind of a a homebody. And um, so I'm so thankful that we have that space um, to utilize. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ledesma. Um, Next speaker, please. We have Joanna Hall. Ms. Hall, please unmute yourself. Hi, thank you very much for taking um, our comments. So um, we were very um, upset about the noise levels last year, and this is nothing like the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. That's a shopping center. This is a residential neighborhood. Um, Also, what's the definition of events not adversely affecting other property in the vicinity? What is the definition of that? Um, Also, it says the proposed use permit would not have an expiration date. That concerns us as well. Um, We have a lot of things going on on our street. We have a Montessori school, a seven-day church service, including Monday through Friday at five o'clock takes parking. We have street sweeping twice a week. We have Webster retail parking. Um, It's common for people to encroach on our driveways instead of going to Webster Street to park to avoid the parking meters. Um, We only have two parking lots in the Webster corridor, one on Hayton Webster and a half of a parking lot now at Taylor and Webster. Um, If this goes forward, we would like to see slow street style barricades so that people do not park on our block. We want more collaboration with the residences, with the residents here. We want a resident liaison that's assigned. I find it hard to believe there were only two people that complained all of last season because we've been complaining a lot. So you don't have a, a, a good complaint mechanism set up for the residents. We also want a strict adherence to end times and we want measured sound audio levels at every amplified event, not just when uh, required by the city. We also want a designated contact uh, with the overseeing entity available by phone during the events. Um, Anyway, that's just a few, few of the concerns we have here. And also we have Uh, 52 spaces on the street in which people can park. And um, by my count today with the number of dwelling units here, we have at least 104 people living on this street. So I'm going to, I'm going to chime in. I'm Cheryl. I live with Johanna on Taylor street. I I'm a, I'm a kind of appalled for someone to say there was only two complaints to the noise. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. So if that's the way city government operates, that's that's pretty painful to hear. You should be asking the residents and the woman that spoke earlier was very 
eloquent in how and the problems out here. The other issue is we had problems with noise and you did nothing. The police did nothing. So putting this through again and acting like it's no big deal is pretty painful to see this is the way government works. Thank you um, for your comments. Let's move on to next speaker, please. Stacy Marino. Can you hear me? Yes, Stacy. That's okay. a way for the um, the staff to pull up the timer, please. Okay, no problem. There we go. Okay. Thank you. Hello, members of the planning board. My name is Stacy Marino. I support the healing garden and the outdoor dining and approving the permit to continue events this year, but against the ones with amplified sound. I believe that we put up enough with events with amplified sound, considering so many took place last year, and it affected the quality of life of my neighbors. When a similar permit was presented to the board July of last year, it was mentioned that the use of the lot is not anticipated to be long-term and alternate locations would be found and events in the lot wouldn't continue in 2022. Well, here we are again with another request for a permit. Why is this being presented to the board now? There have been multiple events held in the lot this year already. Shouldn't a use permit be approved before those took place? I think that those that live or do business close to the lot think it's been long enough. Have all the businesses that are part of WABA been pulled to see if they are for or against events continuing? Are other businesses really benefiting from the events? For paid events, do attendees have in and out privileges? Can they bring food or drink into the lot? Thank you for your time, consideration, not approving the permit or making certain, you know, approving certain parts of the permit and listening to our comments. Thank you, Ms. Marino. Um, next speaker, please. We have uh, Didi Lewis. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Um, Hi, my name is Didi. I am. There we go. Hi, I'm the PTA president at Maya Lynn School uh, on the west side there. And we are just so appreciative of the ability to use that community space. Um, during the pandemic, uh, Alameda Music Project was able to offer safe outdoor music education during the day. Um, we have hopefully um, a fundraising event coming up that is an all ages community event uh, that is in uh, compliance with the city noise ordinance and are hoping that, um, well, obviously no one wants to be traumatizing neighbors and community members, but having all ages community events accessible in a safe way, while a lot of the restrictions have been eased up. We are still in a pandemic. So utilizing that outdoor space is paramount. Um, and we are just so grateful that we have business partners that want to support our schools and um, offer safe community events. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Lewis. Um, next speaker, please. We have Linda Asbury. Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, Linda Asbury, Executive Director of the West Alameda Business Association. Thank you for hearing this again tonight. I want to make a few clarifications. Last year, we had 26 events with Amplified Sound, and we did monitor them. We did send all that information to the city. This year, we're asking for six total between now and the end of December. So that is less than one a month. The other clarification is the Taylor Webster lot is a privately owned lot. It is not considered a parking lot. Never, well, it was many, many years ago. But as far as loss of parking, that is not a designated parking lot at all. Again, it's privately, um, is privately owned. We have worked with those who uh, the noises bother them. I totally understand. Uh, however, of the events we have, they're acoustic. They're fundraisers. We had a baby shower. Uh, we never go past, you know, nine o'clock at the latest. So what I'm asking for you to consider is we can't compare to last year because last year we had, it was our first year, we had many, many amplified. Uh, this year we listening to our neighbors. Uh, we've got it down to six and I, and we will stick to that. I think the other thing to note is we did plan an event uh, on July 23rd that uh, Melissa Milan has a event herself that day and we canceled ours. And so I wanna say that uh, for good faith, we are in it to for the community, we're in it for anything that we can do for our business district. I am a resident of West Alameda. I live four blocks off West Webster. Uh, I get impacted at times from parking from farmer's market and from different things. It's just what needs to be done for a successful business district. I am here. If there are any further questions, happy to answer them for you. And thank you for your consideration of this wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity we have for the West End. Thank you. Thank you. Um any other speakers? There are no more public speakers. Thank you. Um, now let's close the public comment um, period. Um, let's move on to board comments. Um, board member Hom. Yeah, th thank you very much, Vice Chair Ruiz. I actually had a question of Ms. Ashbury um, regarding her um, comment about number of amplified noise events. Um, you indicated, and in your submittal packet, you I was going through the events you marked with a double asterisk as the ones that would have amplified sound, and you would just reiterate it that you would probably just have about one amplified noise event uh, each month. So staff is recommending maximum of three per month. So for Linda, would you be fine with just revising the condition to, to be a maximum of one amplified noise event per month? Absolutely. That's the, we, it was done intentionally listening to the neighbors. Uh, that's why you're seeing six, you're not seeing 20. And I'm saying that with a really big smile. Uh, absolutely. Okay, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate you listening well, to your neighbors. So maybe for staff, why did we set it at three per month? Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we understand that, I mean, these calendars are, can be in flux a little bit. And I think we were looking at the, the range of events here and just anticipating 
um, that some of these events and the way the condition was written, it's including any event with amplified sound. So we were, we were including things where, you know, um, maybe last year would have been considered just background noise, like, you know, uh, a DJ playing music while people are outdoor dining, et cetera. So the, the way the condition was written, it was written to cover those events as well. Um, so, but obviously, you know, and, and also just looking to the future, like what did we think was a reasonable amount, um, of events where they would be able to sort of have amplified noise per month. And, and we came up with three, obviously the current calendar looks like it's one, um, in terms of concerts. Um, but, uh, you know, I think depending on some of these events, they may, um, maybe you could ask Linda to clarify. I think some of those smaller events would have the potential to have some, some background music that um, may fall into the, the amplified category, but maybe not have the same impact as the larger um, concerts. Okay. okay. Thank you. Board member T. Thank you. Um, I, I'm a little staff. What was the, there were events on the 8th and the 9th. Um, were those then done illegitimately? What's the story on those? Um, I think you, yeah, you could say that there, you know, appear to have been a couple of events that have happened. I know there was some confusion um, with the applicant um, on what type of permit was needed for events this year there was um a, you know in late february i believe there was a application for um, a series of special event permits to cover events and there was there was a little um confusion okay. in that respect and so once we got a uh the proper application in we attempted to schedule um a you know a hearing as soon as possible but this okay. and so the, the schedule that was included in the staff report was written before the conditions were listed because there are events that are not in compliance with the conditions. I'm sorry, I didn't quite follow the question. So should we be expecting all the events that are listed in what the applicant sent to be in compliance with the conditions? That's not the case, just so you know, that's a loaded question. I think staff would expect any event to be in compliance with the conditions of the use permit before you tonight, if that's okay. what you're so asking. So then the list of calendar events will need to change. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I am not in favor of the amplified music and I'm not in favor of it occurring on Thursday, which they have no events scheduled for Thursdays. Um, I could be convinced to do maybe 80 decibels uh, for an amplified event, but uh, no more than one per month. Uh, there are events that are listed that are like seven hours long that are labeled as amplified music where it's supposed to be limited to three. So we would wanna make sure that indeed they are in compliance. Um, I would, as someone else mentioned, uh, want to have this come back in a year as a review uh, for it to then become permanent if we were to move forward with it. 
Um, I, you know, I do want to see the space used, but I also don't want to see it impacting the neighborhood um, in this way. When we did this last year, the pandemic was in full boil and the idea of social distancing, being outside and being far apart was a critical factor for the public health. When we're talking about 200, 300 kinds of people, we're no longer talking about it being a socially distanced typed event. So I, I am not willing at this point to really grant a lot of leniency on this particular use permit. Thank you. Thank you, Board Member T. Board Member Curtis. I I, I agree with with both uh, both uh, Board Member Teague and Board Member Hom, and and I, I think that I think that given everything that's been said, the fact that there's six. Um, items left. I think that that that, that that perhaps this thing could work out where everybody could vote on it with three conditions. One, that the permit be approved for one year. Two, that you have the three strikes rule written into the resolution, the condition for the one year permit. And three, that that um, that there's no more than one amplified event per per month. Um, with those, with those three conditions, you've, you've met pretty much a reasonable compromise. As long as the rest of the resolution is adhered to, where the, the amplified music is no more than the number of hours said in the resolution. Um, you got the control with the, with the complaints. You've got enough to, to keep activity there. Plus you've got a wide open schedule for all the other public events for un, non-amplified items um, like bazaars and, and other events like that. And that's that's my recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Board Member Curtis. Um, I too am very concerned about the um, amplified noise and its negative impact on our resi residential neighbors. Um, the conditions of last year is very different than this year, um, like, um, some of the comments that had shared this evening that um, more and more event venues for live music has opened up. When we authorized the temporary use permit last year, it was meant to be temporary it, to address the unusual circumstances of that, that period of time. Um, so I had a really difficult time supporting any amplified event. Um, but noting the conditions that board member Curtis has put forth, I would like to further limit the one amplified event to three hour maximum per month. So it's not just the number of days, but also the number of hours. And the amplified event should include, you know, DJ as well as live band. Um, and Again, one year review and um, three violations will be called to um, for revocation. Do we have a motion? Um, yes, um, 
comments, um, board member Hom, and then board oh, member. Oh, I was gonna make a motion. So sure. if, if, if there's other board comments, however, I'll wait. Board member Curtis, do you have further comments? Just a clarification um, for uh, President Ruiz, and that is when you say three hours, that's three hours per event, right? Not three, three hours, hours total. Per Amplify event. Perfect. Thank you. Board member Teak. Uh, that is already in the conditions. Right. 4B okay. already limits it to three hours per day for an amplified event. Mm -hmm. So that's not new. It already exists. Thank you for um, the reminder. Thank you. And can I just clarify that the current condition um, does limit to three hours per day for the amplified noise um, events, but does give one additional hour for um, pre-event sound checks only. So up to the board, but just wanted to, to note that that detail was there. Yeah, yeah. Understood. No, I saw that. Well, so I think the, the current is to change 4A to be one day per calendar month. Um, and to add the condition that this will come back before the board in one year for review. I, I can try to state a motion if, if you like, uh, Vice Chair Ruiz. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, base, uh, for, first of all, um, I think continuing the community events and the range of events that's being offered by WEBA and especially the community events are, are really overall positive for the community. However, the, the noise impact on the neighbors is a significant concern. And I hear this from board members and speakers tonight. So I'm in favor of continuing uh, the use permit uh, with the following conditions. Uh, number one, that the use permit is valid for one year, so it requires coming back to the board for continual approval and review. And that if there's some second condition, if, there, if there's uh, uh, at least three complaints received, um, I don't know what, what the right period, three com different complaints, not from the same residents, then that the staff would may bring the item back to the planning board for review even before the one year period. Um, uh, second, only one amplified noise event per month and that includes concerts as well as DJs or, or non-concert type events. And that the, and third is that the amplified noise event can only be on a Friday or Saturday. And, um, the three hours is already covered in the existing condition and any modifications to the schedule that the, this is maybe the fourth condition, any modification to the schedule as currently submitted by the applicant needs to be reviewed by the uh, planning staff. And if there's any significant changes, then that should also be returned to the planning board for review. So that, that, that I think that captures, I believe, uh, all the comments from board members. I have one additional, okay. which is that the 85 decibel be measured at the property line. Um, that to me, so that 
I thought about that condition, uh, Board Member Teague. So would that apply to the taqueria also? Is there, if it can be applied to just the residential property lines, I'm fine with that. Well, we, we don't speak for the taqueria owner. I know, I know. I'm just thinking if, because the taqueria is just literally next, right next door to where the band the, the, the noise ordinances specifies property lines. Um, yeah. But if we want to say yeah. at the property lines uh, adjacent to any residential property, but the people walking by on the sidewalks are also going to get blasted. Yeah, yeah. I, get, I, I, I see uh, staff Staff is the hands up. Uh, yeah, maybe you can. Thank you. Yes. So um, make I, a suggestion there. Yeah. So the noise ordinance does provide standards based on the residential property line. So if the board wants want to defer to that standard, that's certainly appropriate. There's um, also separate standards for um, non-residential property lines. So the question would be: In this case, would would the 85 be solely for residential or? Would you like it for all neighbors? So I guess the question is, is this proposed condition uh, more lenient than what the noise ordinance would allow for residential adjoining properties? It is. Hey, babe. Love you. It, it would be more lenient. So <laughs> I is. guess I would say oh, we should I'm not, <laughs> we should not allow um, more, I would say we should oh. not allow more permissive than what the noise ordinance currently allows. Yeah, so it is more permissive, again, the reason being the noise ordinance sets the standard as the ambient noise, which um, which if you're considering a use permit to allow amplified noise, um, you would have to give it some some leeway um, to, to be for it to be a realistic standard. Oh, okay. Because anytime you turn on a speaker, it's going to be louder than your ambient noise level. And I think Brian yeah, has I'm fine with it being the residential borders. Uh, versus the commercial, but I, I want to protect the the residents. Yeah, mostly. No, I, I, I agree. I totally agree. If if uh, board member Teague is fine with setting the eighty five decibels at the residential borders. Uh, Staff House has a related question. Um, I am looking at the schedule that Wab has submitted uh, with the application. It does note that a lot of the uh, acoustic noise level is for low key ambient noise level. So I do want to pose that question to the board to see if that is something you would want to allow. I assume acoustic means no amplified um, speakers, right? Is that uh, it, true? I, I would probably defer to the uh, applicant for clarification. It's just Thank you. An example of that is for the Incinal High bingo fundraiser. They did need a microphone and a small something to to say the numbers. So to us, that's amp ambient amplified because it's not some of us just required. You have to introduce people. There are people that say things that does require a microphone, but it's not amplified that takes it up to bands and uh, drums and any of that noise. So the six I've referred to 
that are the only ones that, that are really amplified will have that sound versus the many, many others that you have on the calendar. It simply is the microphone, introduce, perhaps background music. Does that answer your question? Well, if it's a low key, then you wouldn't you you shouldn't have any issue complying with our noise ordinance. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. I I would I would say that the one event, limited to one event, is is um, amplified noise related to either a DJ or live band, where there's music involved. So, anyway, um, yeah, anyway, that's my motion. We have a clear motion, and uh, with the, all the conditions, staff, would you like to repeat that to make sure we're on the same page? Sure. Uh, Brian, would you like to take a shot, or I could do it? Um, help me out. Sure, so, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, what I heard is uh, we want to limit the uh, amplified noise to one calendar day per month, but that's only uh, related to. Uh, DJ activity and live bands where we have music um, and that those events would be limited to a uh, period of three hours. Um, we also uh, on, Friday and on, Friday. On, Friday, on Friday and Saturday. Right. Thank you. And then uh, that the use permit approval would expire in one year, which means the applicant must apply uh, and return to the planning board for uh, to extend the use permit if they desire. Um, the that the uh, decibel reading for the amplified noise sounds would be uh, 85 decibels at measured at the residential property lines. Um, the applicant would also need to submit a uh, a formal schedule of events to planning staff, so that we would review that for compliance with the conditions. Um, I also heard that there was uh, also a um, requirement that if we staff receive three verified complaints from different individuals, that that would be uh, uh, that we would schedule a revocation hearing. That's already in there on 4C, the end paragraph. Okay. Does it, specify, does it specify three? I'm not, don't have the condition right. In the amplified noise condition, it does. The, okay. There's also just a general um, revocation clause. Thanks for that. Okay. And Lance is already included. Thanks. So we have a motion on the table. Do we have a second? I'll second it. Thank you, Board Member Curtis. Um, please roll call the vote, vote, please. Yes. Board Member Curtis? Aye. Hong? Aye. Ruiz? Aye. Teague? Aye. And that motion passes. Thank you. Um, let's move on to agenda item number 7B, Alameda Point Site A Development Plan Amendment. Staff, do you have a presentation? Uh, I think Director Thomas is going to give a staff report. Uh, be before they start, could the city attorney uh, address the issue about the um, exhibit one and the, how we're handling that in terms of this study session. Um, based on my understanding there, exhibit one, the 2015 site A development plan was not accessible. The link was broken um, to, you know, we're, I think the planning board is 
able to conduct the study session, receive public comment, um, and to the extent there are questions uh, that aren't resolved during the meeting, you have the option to um, continue the study session, ask questions, you know, we can kind of, Andrew can provide you with various options on how to move forward. Thank you, City Attorney. Um, Director Thomas. Hi, um, Andrew Thomas, Planning Building Transportation Director. I'll be presenting uh, the item tonight. And as, as uh, uh, City Attorney uh, Selena Chen just said, it's a workshop. So this is an opportunity to talk about the issues. Um, we're sorry about the link to the 2015 plan um, that is available from the city. And, and since you're not making any final decisions tonight, um, we'll make sure that it's... Um, it is available on the city website for anybody who wants to see it. And we're happy to answer any questions about it tonight uh, if it helps uh, for the conversation and the discussion about amendments to that plan and uh, to move forward um, with the redevelopment of Alameda Point. I'm gonna try to share very quickly a PowerPoint just to keep me organized and go moving along on time. Bear with me. Do you see my screen? Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Okay. So we're talking about the site A development plan amendments. Um, I just want to quickly uh, give the planning board and the community a overview of what we're doing and what we are proposing. Um, and then I, uh, in the staff report, we posed a few questions that we thought would be important to, to get a, a community conversation going about. Um, and so tonight is really the beginning of that. Uh, discussion. This, these um, amendments will need to come back to the planning board for final action. Um, but before we do that, we have a little more work to do. We also plan to check in with other boards and commissions, such as the Commission uh, on People with Disabilities, which is an important issue that we want to raise tonight. Um, and you'll have the benefit of their input before you're asked to make any final recommendations on this, uh, development plan amendments. So what we're talking about is Alameda Point and the Alameda Point program that is critical to our draft housing element. Uh, we're hoping to, um, that our draft housing element describes the, um, our basic plan, which is to build, let me see if I can get this cleaned up, um, 1,489 approximately housing units at Alameda Point, our uh, housing element proposes that we can do that um, between two, um, existing development areas that we have been, we have already done the plans for, we've already done the zoning for, and we've already identified the developers for. And it's essentially site A um, and the West Midway area. The West Midway area immediately to the north outlined in red on this, um, on this slide. Uh, site A is the blocks outlined in black and with color uh, to, the, to the south of the red block or the red area. Um, between these two development areas, we hope to get um, approximately 1,482 units built in site A, which is the southern portion. Um, we would we want to try to accomplish 600 units within the next eight years. That will set up the infrastructure, not only for site A to enable us to build the housing on, on the site A site, but it also makes it possible to extend the infrastructure into the red block area with the West Midway area. Um, 
because you can't do housing without infrastructure. So it's a phased plan over eight years to build 1400 units and it all starts with infrastructure. And it starts from the South where the infrastructure has already begun on West Atlantic and we're extending the infrastructure North into the red box. So um, that is the eight year program in one slide. Um, so what we're talking about is the site A and we're talking about the re-entitlement of site A. Site A is essentially the areas in the two red blocks here, as well as um, the area in between the two red boxes. This is superimposed on our waterfront town center specific plan. This is an area that um, the specific plan is the underlying zoning, the underlying development regulations for the redevelopment of this area of, of Alameda Point. And as you can see the yellow air, it's essentially yellow and orange. So our specific plan recommended that this entire area of site A be used for residential purposes and uh, the highest density residential. Um, and the concept here was concentrate housing and um, higher density housing around the transit corridors and the ferry terminal and the sort of the commercial core of Alameda Point. So this is an illustration of site A as proposed this amendment. Um, the proposal, these, if you can see, hopefully you can see my cursor. This is, if you're, I'm circling here, block six. These are the, yes, as we you can see it. We can excellent, see it. Excellent, excellent. So as you come into Alameda Point, West Atlantic, you drive straight through on West Atlantic, the new Cross Alameda Trail, and you come to the Waterfront Park. We had a grand opening for the Waterfront Park on Saturday. Um, uh, there were, uh, ton of people there. It was really exciting to open the park. That's at the end of the Cross Alameda Trail. As you come in, you pass block six. These are 60 townhomes. Um, just, uh, I think their construction is complete. Uh, then next to it, block seven, another 62 townhomes, almost complete. Then we get to block eight. These are the um, two affordable buildings, uh, low-income seniors in the front, low-income families in the back. That block is um, also complete and almost fully occupied. And then you have the Arrow building, which is 200 units of uh, market rate rental units. That building is complete and occupied. So as you pass that building, as you're heading towards the park today, you pass two vacant parcels. We call this block 10 and we call this parcel block 11. Block 11 has entitlements for 200 units. We expect them to pull building permits in the next month or two. So this block, Block 10, is the block that was originally planned in the Site A development plan in 2015 for a, we, used, we called it the urban park block. It had three existing structures that were gonna be adaptively reused for commercial around a central plaza to increase our housing and then to, so part of the first amendment that we're discussing here is to re-entitle this block back for residential, high density residential on the front, lower density on the back. Moving the neighborhood park that you see here, this horizontal neighborhood park is constructed and very well used. Starting at this end, we call this block 15A and block 15B, the proposal is to do townhomes in this block, more townhomes in block 16, 
I get some additional townhomes in this area. And then these um, orange um, buildings are walk-up buildings. So these are relatively, you know, two, three-story buildings, but with units, not like townhomes vertically organized, but vertically organized. So you have the units above ground floor units. And then a multifamily building at the end in block 17. Walk up on block 14. So this entire area that I just described under the current site A development plan, not block 11, but everything else that's not already built is programmed for 128 units. This block 15 and and 15 was, was essentially 128 units and all the rest of it was gonna be commercial or non-residential. So in an effort to support a housing element, we're recommending a re uh, an amendment to the site development plan to allow for um, residential development. What this is doing is essentially increasing the residential capacity for site A from 800 units to 1300 units. There are three issues that um, we wanted to raise for discussion tonight. This is their. This is the original. This is the initial development plan we're showing on the on the screen tonight. There's a, a couple, three issues we wanted to raise. We raised it in the staff report. Um, we would uh, very much appreciate uh, planning board and community feedback on these three issues, as well as any other issues that anybody um, sees with this site plan and with this proposal. Um, this is a workshop. It's an opportunity to air these issues, discuss them, um, and then we will be back at a future hearing um, for resolution of those issues. The first, the basic street network, the way people move through this um, area. One of the primary things that staff is, um, would like some feedback on, we believe that this east-west connection is an important pedestrian bicycle connection through the middle of site A. It's also a view corridor to the west. The views from Alameda as you approach Alameda Point and you look down West Atlantic, as you west look down through these view corridors, amazing views of San Francisco and, and to the west. So this really is just the, the one thing that we've been thinking about is moving this building a little bit to the south. That opens up this view corridor or the, all the way through where the red arrow is. Also becomes a nice pedestrian and bicycle corridor through the site. We don't think it's necessary to extend Coronado Avenue through here for cars, but we do think it would be great to have the view corridor um, opened up by moving this building here down to the south and allow bicycles and pedestrians to make that connection from the, from this park and then keep moving west towards um, the park system uh, and these uses down here. Second and probably biggest issue that we wanted to bring to planning board attention and to um, discuss is the uh, diversity of housing types. This, um, we're proposing to try to build 600 units just in this area in the next eight years. Um, this, these 600 units are comprised of 400 townhomes, 200 approximately, if I have my numbers right, um, multifamily units, and then the walk-up units as well. Um, the a large proportion of townhomes in terms of the overall mix of housing types. Um, 
And this raises an issue. This is an issue we have had to um, struggle with with many townhome projects in Alameda over the last um, seven to 10 years, is that the townhome building type is, um, it's very, it's very difficult to meet our universal design expectations um, and ordinance requirements. Um, every project with a large number of townhomes has had to request a waiver from the city's ordinance. That process is ultimately approved by the planning board after getting a recommendation from the disability commission. In this case, we wanted to bring this issue to the forefront as early as possible um, in the Alameda Point planning process. This is city owned land. This is, the city is a partner in this project. Um, so we feel that it's very important that we, as a community, discuss this concern because this townhome project will require waivers from our own universal design ordinance. Um, and we wanted to um, air these issues out and have an opportunity for the community to discuss this before any final decisions were made um, in an effort to avoid a situation where the city council approves the re-entitlements of this project. And then a year or two later, um, there is a series of hearings about waivers from our own ordinances. Um, so we just wanted to bring this issue up front early in the planning process. It comes down to, to help define the conversation. This Site A development plan already has a requirements that exceed the basic building code. And that is that 10% of all townhomes must be visitable. So what that means is it, because a townhome has lots of stairs, multiple floors, usually three, um, very hard for a person with disabilities to live in that unit, almost impossible. So the idea is that 10% of these townhomes should at least be visitable, meaning there should be on the ground floor a space where a person with disabilities is able to access that space without negotiating stairs and could visit with the people who live in the townhome. The citywide ordinance requires that 100% of all new units meet that standard. So with 400 townhomes, it's really the difference between 40 units meeting the standard or 400 units meeting the standard. Um, and that's really the issue that we wanted to bring to everybody's attention and talk about and get your feedback as, as the planning board. We will be taking this issue to the um, Commission with Disabilities. So you will have their, the benefit of their opinion before you're asked to make any final decisions, any final recommendations to the city council on this issue. Um, with that, I'm gonna um, conclude the staff presentation. Um, we're here to answer any questions, to facilitate the conversation. Um, and, and we're here to take any direction. We also have um, representatives from our partners um, who have been with us since 2014 and who built all of phase one and the new brand new uh, waterfront park, Alameda Point partners. So we have representatives from, from our development partner here to also help answer any questions and, 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 and participate in the conversation tonight. Uh, thank you for the time. And um, we're pleased to be having this workshop with the planning board and the community tonight. Thank you, Director Thomas.
for the um, presentation. Um, right now, I'm going to open up for um, board member clarifying questions. And uh, board member T, please. Um, yes. So for this project, they had a density bonus application, right? Originally, yes. Yeah. Yes. So can they add a waiver request under that density bonus with this amendment? Absolutely. Okay. I think the difference Thanks. is they're not, the city as property owner has a lot of discretion. A private property owner has certain rights under state density bonus, but we okay. are the property owner. So we, and that's why one of the reasons we have, we're really bringing this to the forefront now, right. like we, the city count, we, the city of Alameda as represented by our legislative body, we should tackle this issue now and not say, oh, or we have a waiver under state density bonus, therefore we have to give it to them. Well, okay. them is us. Okay. Thank Are we going to waive the standard that. for ourselves okay. is really the question before the city tonight. Thank you. That's, that's, that was my only question. Thank you. Um, board member Curtis. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, Andrew it was really good. I have a, I have a very basic question. And my question is who is Alameda Partners? What does that consist of? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a limited liability company, but who is, what developers make up that partnership? Um, I'm going to, I would love to introduce our development partners. I think they're here tonight. Um, they're probably signed up to speak. Um, the, it, 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 there's um, the two primary partners are Trammel Crow Residential and a CEI company. Or, I'm, I'm a little vague on the actual official names, but they're here tonight and they can introduce themselves. Terrific. That's, that's my only question right now. Oh, you're muted, uh, President Ruiz. Thank you. Um, Director Thomas, I have one question. Um, in our housing element update, which we'll discuss as the last item yeah. on the agenda, do we include the um, 1,300 units or the 800 I thought we included the additional units in our housing element, correct? Yes, <laughs> yes, right. yes. Okay, just wanted That's to right. And, and just for if you, if I may, just for the benefit of the public. So we have a draft housing element, which is attempting to place 25% of our regional housing needs at Alameda Point. To accomplish that, we need to be able to build at least 600 units on this on site A. So that is really, but if we, the city, are unwilling to entitle 600 units, on our land at site A, then we certainly need to revise our housing element um, to reduce that number. Because at the end of the day, the city of Alameda controls how many housing units can be built on that property because it is city-owned property. Thank you. Um, seeing that there's no further board um, clarifying questions, that's open up for public comment. Uh, we have one public speaker waiting, Trish Spencer. Council member Spencer, please unmute.
can't hear you. We can't hear you. My apologies, I'm just listening. Oh, I think she said she was just listening. Okay. Thank you. Any other speakers? No other speakers at this time. Thank you. The, that concludes the public comment um, section. Let's open up for more comments. Um, board member Teague. Thank you, Andrew, for uh, bringing this to us. Um, there are so many townhomes in that area. Uh, the lower density, I look at it and I go like, why are we building so many townhouses? I would rather see more houses there than what is there, which would also make the universal design potentially a lot easier. Um, I, I think we should strive for more in terms of the universal design than we normally would get, as opposed to doing a waiver, but maybe we could reach some sort of compromise on that. But I, I'm looking at it in terms of the building type. It's the, it, there are too many townhomes. Um, and townhomes then come with garages. Garages have cars, and then we have this issue. And uh, I'm that part of the plan. I'm not thrilled with. But it could be we only can do six hundred. We can't do seven or eight, and so therefore that is the optimal use of the land. But that's what I'm looking at here. I think moving the building absolutely makes sense for the view corridor. Uh, I think that would be great. Designating that as a pedestrian bike area, not an emergency vehicles only. Uh, I, I like that idea a lot. Um, so, you know, I, I would be in favor of things along those lines. Thank you. Thank you, board member T. Any other um, board member comments? Board member Curtis? Yes, uh, let me unmute. No, I remember. Andrew, um, who is Alameda Partners? We we got Trammel Crow, but who who makes up who makes up the entity? I'm. Uh, we talk about them, but what 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 the, what does it yeah. consist of? I I does see the, I I see um, St Stephanie Hill. Um, from our part, which is one of our partners, Alameda Point Partners, is I'm getting text. She's her hand is up, but apparently she's not being seen by. Um, does any do you see any other speakers with their hands up? Um, anyone? She, I do. She allow her to. Yes, please, um, Stephanie Hill. Let's get uh, that's our development partner. She can help explain who who Great. they are. It'd be better to hear from Stephanie. Don't and on the second, yeah, um, I'm just now seeing um, Karen Bay and Jessica Murphy with their hands. Jessica Murphy is a member of the development team. Stephanie Hill is a member, of, and and Karen Bay, of course, is a uh, a member of the community who. Right. Who, so um, procedurally, can we reopen public comment? That would be a great idea. Yes, that let's do that. Why don't you? What, let's hold off on board member comments again and open reopen the public comment section, please. Okay. Um, 
I will open, I will allow uh, Jessica Murphy to speak. Jessica. Hi, hi, good evening. This is Stephanie Hill on behalf of Trammell Crow Residential. We are one of the partners within Alameda Point Partners. Alameda Point Partners is comprised of two development teams. One is Trammell Crow Residential, the other is Cypress Equity Investments. Trammell Crow Residential is founded and, and based out of Dallas, Texas, founded in 1977. We have been involved with this project since 2014 when the city initially issued an RFP for Site A for the 68-acre master plan redevelopment. Trammelquare Residential specializes in building apartment communities throughout the country. We have a local office based in San Mateo who oversees the, the Bay Area development. Jessica Murphy, who is also joining us this evening, is from Cypress Equity Investments. Cypress Equity Investments is also an apartment developer. They developed Aero Apartments, which is a 200 unit development, which is currently um, open and, and renting and in lease up. They're based out of Los Angeles and they have developments again throughout the country. We have partnered together. We have done the phase one infrastructure as the master developer. And then we sold various parcels to vertical developers. So blocks six and seven that Andrew mentioned previously, those are the townhomes that were developed by Trumark Homes. We have block eight, which is with Eden Housing who built the affordable. And then block 11 is being built by a, a separate developer and that's 220 units. Again, expect to have construction underway this summer. Um, as it relates to the question about townhomes and why there are so many within phase two, a piece of it is the complexity of building at Alameda Point. We do have higher restrictions in different requirements, including we have the 25% on-site affordable housing we have the infrastructure, and then we also have a PLA. And so a piece of what we're trying to balance is not only the housing that's allowed under the Navy cap, but also looking at what we can do from an economic feasibility perspective. And so with those townhomes, they do have a slightly lower density, but they do have a higher land residual to help us pay for the cost impacts of providing a new infrastructure for the city, as well as provide that additional affordable housing and then obviously the, the PLA has impacts to our vertical costs. Um, I am available to answer any additional questions that you may have about Alameda Point Partners or our phase two proposal. We appreciate your consideration this evening. Thank you very much. Very good job. Thank you. Um, so let's move uh, on to next speaker. Okay, we have Jessica Murphy. Think there's another Jessica Murphy or this is this is Stephanie Hill again. Oh. Um, there there must be something that has gotten crossed given that I'm not Jessica Murphy, so I'm gonna. Uh... <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, we have Karen Bay. Okay, we have Karen Bay. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you. I, I just also wanted to reiterate some of the things that uh, uh, Tamil Crow mentioned earlier about developing at Alameda Point, um, developing on the military base. <laughs> um, so the project labor, labor agreement, which no other developer, none of the other developers um, in town are required to do, um, 
and a 25% affordable. Uh, none of the other developers are required to do 25%. They're required to do 15%. In addition, an extraordinary amount of community benefits, um, a ferry terminal, uh, three parks, the waterfront park, the neighborhood park, the urban park, which all of their community benefits were completed in phase one. Most developers complete them over the life of their project. I think Catellus did their community benefits uh, in phase two and in phase four. This developer did all of their community benefits in phase one. Um, so in, in addition, they did a $1 million contribution to the sports complex. All of those again in phase one. So in terms of feasibility, I, I think we should, um, I guess, reward the developer. Uh, and I, I'm just really proud also of the, the affordable units that they built. I mean, they're almost completely, um, completely, they're, they're, they're the buildings are completely done and I think they're almost completely occupied. But uh, I think there's a certain percentage of homeless veterans that are included in those units and family units. And so when you think of the totality of what this developer has done for this community and for Alameda Point, um, it's such a wonderful project. People love going out there. The parks are beautiful. The, it's just a wonderful experience. And I think overall, we want to reward developers that provide community benefits in phase one. I mean, that's unheard of. I've been in real estate development for 25 years. And you usually span the community benefits out over the life of the project. So we've been fortunate enough to be able to enjoy those community benefits now, uh, especially the ferry terminal, the waterfront park, all of that. So I would like us to consider, you know, waiving the requirements on, on the townhomes and, and reward them by allowing them to do the townhomes. I think that that's entirely appropriate. And when you look at the future phases, what they're going to do, um, more affordable, 25%. Um, again, no other developer, none of the other private developers are being asked to do 25%. So um, just wanted to make sure I spoke up for that. Uh, thank you very much for the time. <clears throat> thank you, Ms. Bay. Do we have any other speaker? There are no more uh, public speakers. Thank you. Now we officially close the public comment section again. <laughs> And um, so, Board Member Curtis, we, um, you were in the middle of uh, voicing your comments. Do you have further comments? No, I got my question very nicely answered. Thank you very much, Madam uh, President. Thank you. Um, Board Member Hom. Yeah, thank you, uh, Vice Chair Ruiz. And, and thank you, staff, for the uh, nice presentation. Um, my comments essentially supporting what Steph is recommending. I, I, I do agree that this location is ideal for an increase in density with the water terminal, um, the water ferry terminal, excuse me, 
uh, it's just a logical place to add the units to meet our arena. So the increase from 800 to 1300 units makes sense given our capacity limit. It'd be nice to continue to pursue increasing the number of units allowed at Alameda Point beyond the 1482. I also think the commitment to do 25% affordable housing at Alameda Point is very positive because we really do need to achieve more very low and low income units. Uh, regarding the other points that staff is asking for public feedback on, uh, I, I, I do agree the street network, you know, clarifying, moving the building to strengthen the pedestrian bike corridor through the, the this plan area makes a lot of sense. I also support setting the maximum parking to 1.5 parking spaces as suggested by staff. Universal design, um, I know we've struggled with this with some prior projects, townhouse projects. So I think there's a need to be, to have some flexibility in that regard, maybe perhaps similar to what we've required to pass projects. I know staff has worked closely with some past applicants to, to achieve some, some as close as possible, realizing the constraints to meet the universal design standards. So, um, I think those were the areas that staff was asking for feedback on, and those are my comments. Thank you, board member Hong. Board member T. Um, I had one thought. When Alameda Marina came before us with their townhouses, they had the ground level set up uh, with a kitchenette kind of in-law set up. Um, and at that point, we didn't have the ability to say, call it an ADU mm -hmm. and we're good. Um, but if they did that here, they would accomplish a lot of the universal design as well as doing the side effect of increasing the density. Um, so I would encourage that type of design for these townhouses. That's it, thanks. Thank you for board member T. Um, I have a few comments, um, just responding sequentially to your questions, Director Thomas. In terms of street view um, corridor, I can support the, the proposed revision on Coronado Street, um, but I do suggest you evaluate the connection between Coronado and I believe the, it's Main Street, that connection, um, see if that needs to be signaled um, because it comes into um, the opposite side is just a linear park. And there's, so just evaluate that um, that junction because I know the currently the corner of Main Street at Atlantic, no, yeah, Main Street and Atlantic. It's uh, quite dangerous for cyclists. I myself almost got hit by a few times by um, vehicles making a left turn down that route. So it's something to be mindful of and doing study on those um, intersections as the project develops and evolves and more and more traffic are going that area. In terms of building types, um, I have similar concerns with, along with um, that board member Teague raised, um, a lot of townhome products. At the same time, I understand as a practitioner that um, Townhome products yields more residual land residual to the city, and um, so it's a fine balance between the two. I also miss that we lost the 
urban park block, that retail component. We'll be interested to see how program, from a program standpoint, how that balance out with West Midway, because I think the ultimate goal is provide job housing balance. And I know we're short on housing, so we want to provide as much housing as possible. And being able to do it in first phase is a win-win for everybody. But we won't need to see where are retail components. Can we densify, you know, provide some multifamily and still allow for more that urban park um, product that we has seen in earlier iterations will be helpful. And, and again, balance it out with West Midway's program. And lastly, regarding universal design and the difficulty uh, um, for townhomes to meet that requirements, this is not the first time I've heard it and I've heard it from other practitioners um, saying that th there may be inherent, inherent um, refinement that we need to review of our universal design uh, ordinance. And I will ask that we review, like, review that holistically before we decide if we should grant waivers or not. But I overall I'm in favor of um, visibility. Um, it's not just for you know, people who are um, mobility challenged, a knee wheelchair is also for when you have strollers or bicycles, those, you know, it provide multitude of benefits in addition to wheelchair access. So there's many benefits of that. I think we should just review the universal design ordinance altogether. Um, so those are my comments for this um, study session. And that's, is that everyone? Um, this okay. is very helpful. Thank you. Um, we, we're going to be having a, um, a discussion with the Commission um, for People with Disabilities and get their input on this as well. Um, and we will continue um, our work um, with, with our partners um, to try to make this the best possible plan. Um, the schedule is to have a work session with the um, City Council. We're aiming for May 3rd, so it was helpful to get some initial thoughts from the planning board tonight. Um, the, the council on May 3rd will not be making any final decisions either, um, but um, we do hope to have everything, um, if we're going to move forward, have this all done uh, with our partners um, by, um, by this fall. Because um, once again, we're, we, for the city of Alameda, are anxious to get housing built um, for our housing element. We need to get uh, at least 1,400 units built at Alameda Point in eight years, which means we want to get started. That eight-year period starts in 2023, like so. It's coming right up. So we're really pushing to to move this along. Um, if we um, and if we're gonna if we're gonna make it happen, we're, we want to make it happen as soon as possible. So uh, appreciate it. We will definitely definitely back for a follow-up discussion with the planning board, uh, probably in the next couple of months. Thank you very much. And we'll re-notice it as an action item at that time. So everybody, the public will get full notice um, of that hearing when it's scheduled. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's move on to agenda item, item 7C.
public workshop to review and comment the April 2022 draft housing elements and the proposed zoning code amendment to accommodate the regional housing needs allocation for the period of 2023 to 2031 in compliance with state law. Um, so just a reminder um, to general public that this is a workshop, no action I will be taken. Um, we want to hear everyone to feedback. So with that said, um, staff, do you have a presentation? Yes. Um I will just, uh, Andrew Thomas again, planning director, I just gave a quick overview and I wanna just focus on process because uh, I think it's important that everybody understand where we're at in this process and what the next steps are. Um, and then of course, we're here tonight as staff just to take comments uh, on the housing element uh, from the board or the public. So this is just really a, an opportunity for public comment. Um, from a process perspective, um, this is the, the schedule is as follows. We, on uh, April 5th, released the draft housing element. We're calling it the April 2022 draft housing element. Um, it was released April 5th for a 30-day public comment period. So that public comment period ends May 9th. This is required under state law. The state law is once you have a draft housing element that you believe meets all the requirements of state law, you publish it for public review for at least 30 days so that the community gets an opportunity to review that, that document. So that's what we did on April 5th. That comment period ends May 9th. Um, and we're here tonight to take any comments from either the board or the public, um, but of course we'll be accepting public comments all the way until May 9th. And May 9th is also a planning board regular meeting. So our thinking is we will continue this public comment period right on to May 9th as well, because that'll be the very end of the comment period. Um, and for people who have maybe haven't had time to review the whole housing element yet, and that, but they really wanna pre present their comments to the planning board, May 9th is an opportunity. We are also scheduled for a workshop with the city council on April 19th. Um, and, um, uh, so we'll be taking comments from the public at the uh, council meeting as well. The, we then will review all the comments on May 9th. You know, they come in on May 9th. We'll spend probably at least two weeks going through all the comments and prepare, make any necessary revisions um, to our draft housing element. The next step under state law, and you can always add steps, but these are the, the steps that you must step go through with under state law is to send it to HCD for their review and comment. Um, HCD is the State Department of Housing and Community Development. So their job as, from the, as a department of the state of California is to re review the draft housing element before you bring it back to the planning board for final recommendation and certainly before you go to city council for adoption. They, the state law requires that you get comments from the state because the state ultimately has to certify that it's in compliance in state law. So um, the um, once we send it to um, the state for their review, they have 90 days. So now we're into midsummer, um, late summer, August, then this next step will be to hold additional hearings with the planning board. So now the, at this point, let's say it's late August, September, the planning board will have the benefit of all the public comments that came in on May 9th. The comments from the state 
of California. And then the planning board does what the planning board does with everything. You consider all the information and you make any necessary revisions and you recommend it to city council. And then of course the city council, because this is a general plan amendment, will have to have its public hearings. It will have to consider all the comments from the public, all the comments from HCD, the recommendations of the planning board and make a final decision. Obviously throughout that process, which is expected to take the rest of this calendar year, the public can continue to comment throughout all the way up to the very last hearing, but that's the sequence of events. Um, and um, so uh, with that, I think I'll um, end the presentation. We're here to take any comments. Of course, staff, Alan and myself, Brian McGuire, I think is still on the phone, Selena, we've all worked on this document and we can all um, help answer any questions there that might be, but um, we're here really to take comments and direction from the planning board at this stage on the draft element. Uh, that concludes the present staff presentation. Thank you, Director Thomas. Um, let's open up for board clarifying questions. Board Member Curtis. Yes, I, my question is that we've spent uh, literally tens of hours reviewing what we are on this thing today. There have been many, many recommendations that have been made by the planning board and many, many recommendations um, a lot, most of the fruitful recommendations from the public. What, what I had trouble with, with all the information coming with the original publication of the, of the element, and then this one, is that there was no legend saying, okay, you started with this, here are the, the substantive changes that have been made, and here the, here's what you got today. When you have two documents that, 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 evolved from a lot of input, there should be some kind of a legend that, that prevents us from going word for word, line for line, paragraph for paragraph, to see what the changes are and see whether our changes have been implemented or what changes have been implemented. And that's, I'm not as smart as the rest of my board members. And I'll tell you, I have a heck of a time trying to see the, the difference between the two documents. And that was the only real suggestion I can make because you know, you guys have done a, 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 a Herculean job in doing this. It's just a question of us being able to analyze what's what's being done in a in a logical manner. Thank you. Um, I, I appreciate that um, comment, Board Member Curtis. I, I think just for the for your benefit and for the community's benefit, I'd just like to take a minute to try to answer some of the questions, and we can provide more information at future workshops. Um, the document, the housing element, it's almost 200 pages long. I mean, it is a huge effort. Um, it, and it's all, all those parts. And the reason it's so long is because that's what's required under state law um, to be a, uh, a, um, an adequate housing element. Me personally, I think it's a little bit overkill. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a shame that it has to be that long, but that's the way the state codes are written and so we're trying to comply. Um, and that's what the state office of housing and community development is gonna be looking for. Have we met all the requirements? So the appendices, appendix A through E are with the except, with one exception are all brand new. So none of that, none of those appendices have been published before. 
That's just, it's just brand new information um, that is required under state law. And it took us the last three months to pull it all together. And that's, a, that's over 150 pages of just brand new material. The one exception is Appendix E. That is the site, the housing opportunity sites inventory, which is a very important appendix. And that's many of the workshops that we've had with the planning board have focused on that inventory. And I do think that for your next workshop, it would be helpful um, to document in a, in a legend or some sort of format, sort of how that has evolved. Because if you go back, we've been publishing drafts of that inventory now for over a year. That, this is probably our fifth or sixth published draft. And every draft has, has changed, partially from community comments, partially from board direction, partially from just doing more work and getting more information about sites, talking to property owners, talking to getting um, insight from state. I mean, we also have met um, three times now with the state of California just to answer questions, get, you know, ask questions and get information because we're really, we're writing a housing element for two, for two bodies, the Alameda City Council, but also the State Department of Housing and Community Development. So we're really trying to meet the needs of both. Um, so I think that's that appendix has changed. You have seen earlier versions of Appendix E. I think that would be very helpful. Um, the other piece that you have not seen before is the programs section. So uh, the, uh, most, most elements in our general plan have policies and then actions. This document has policies and it has programs. The programs are the actions. They're very much sort of the specific commitments that the city is making. Every city has to do this in their housing element. The programs is a section that you have not seen again, but it's really where the rubber meets the road. When you read that programs section early in the document, right after the policies, those are the promises that the city is making to the state, the things that we're saying we will do over the next eight years um, to make it possible and to ensure that we're in compliance with state law. That is also a brand new section. Um, finally, the policies, which are right up front. I've kind of gone from the housing, I probably should have started at the beginning and walked to the end, but I started at the end and I'm coming back to the beginning. The policies obviously have adjusted as well. You have seen earlier versions of the policies um, and there have been a, a lot of adjustments done to the policies in response to community input and those sorts of things. And we can provide a, a comparison on that. So I hope that's helpful for anybody who's been following this process for the last few years, because we've, we've been publishing, I think we published our first draft of the housing element in the summer of 2021. So it's, this is the, our third draft that we've published. Andrew, uh, that was a terrific explanation. It really was. Thank you very much. Board Member T for clarifying questions. Thank you. Um, Andrew, There, I'm confused. In the staff report, we talk about the 15 to 30% buffer being required and we get a letter with a reference. So I go look at the reference and it says recommended uh, that we have it. And when last meeting, 
I asked you about what the impact of the net loss was and what you described was, we'll have to quickly rezone in order to make it up. So can you clarify that for me? Because we say required, one says recommended. So could we do 10%? What's, what is the real story there? It's, it is, I think the words from HCD, highly recommended. Um, and I think this is how it, in my experience, and I've been through this now, this is my third housing element, but I am not, I don't pretend to be an expert, <laughs> but, and, and I think what we have to, the benefit of the buffer is this. We're documenting, if you look at that land inventory appendix E, I mean, it's like we're identifying every parcel. We are identifying what the density, the site, how many units we think will happen over the next eight years. There is a certain level of judgment. In some cases, it gets more complicated. Uh, uh, Park Street and Webster Street, pretty tough to get super specific about how many units will get built on each site and, and whether they will happen in eight years. Um, the residential areas, how many units will get built in the next eight years? We don't have a list of specific sites. What we're saying is there's large residential areas that if we loosen up the zoning, we should expect, and we believe strongly we will get more units. Um, if you're the person reviewing that housing element for compliance with state law, you have to decide whether that inventory is, is sufficient, if it's believable, if it is adequate. And that's a tough job for a for some person who's trying who's that job, that's their job in Sacramento. If there's a buffer, if there's an extra, if there's some surplus there, so that if some of those sites actually don't happen it's going, you know what, it's all gonna work out in the wash. It'll be okay. If we provide no buffer, we, the city of Alameda, in my experience, should expect a much more difficult process in getting the state of California to determine that our inventory is adequate because it's gonna require them to analyze everything much, much more closely and be much, much more concerned about every single data point in that buffer. Thank so that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. Um, yeah, I, I am not arguing for no buffer. Yeah. I, I, it's 20 seems high, you know, 10 to 15 seems to be more reasonable, but yeah. that's commentary and I don't want to get into that. And I think what, Reading, and I guess, it, just last thought, just real quick. I think we need to think of the buffer and we have to think about the inventory as one. And, and if our inventory is super strong and really good, we can reduce the buffer. If our inventory is feeling a little bit like it's got some weak points, then the bigger buffer helps us. Okay. Reading through the definitions, um, I am unclear how you count shared living versus density. So how many units is a shared living? I mean, it, there's no translation. So how do we translate those? Well, um, for the purposes of counting units in the arena, towards the arena, or in terms of figuring uh, out what's both? allowed? Because we say shared living is allowed. Yes. So, and then we say, you know, there's two, or there's one, or there's three, or there's 
30 per acre or whatever. But shared living with there's the way we define a unit in Alameda is by whether there's a kitchen or not. Density that, is uh, that's is not in the definitions. That is what's, that is what's that, not in the definition. That is tied to family. Not no, shared single, living and family dwelling, are very different. No, dwelling unit is defined as a living space for a family or group that has a kitchen, a, a living room, and a and a, you know a, basically the facilities for 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 living. Separate and the kitchen is part of that definition. To then figure out density, you need to know how many units you have divided by this the area of the lot. Just so you know, that is not what we say in the definitions. Definition so, of what? De which definition? Designed huh? for occupancy by one family. Right. When and then shared, there is a shared living, not necessarily one family. That's right. That's right, but so, only one kitchen. So, and there is a definition of dwelling that defines the need for a um, kitchen. Okay. So I can pull. Okay, I'll cover definition. the rest of that in my commentary. I think, in terms of to answer your question, a shared living facility where there's multiple groups or multiple households sharing a kitchen, one kitchen, that is defined under our. A municipal code as one unit. Now, if we are doing something, let's say assisted living at the um, McKay facility, 90 units for formerly homeless seniors, and we're providing permanent housing for them, oh, we are absolutely going to HCD and saying we want to get credit for 90 units. In towards our arena because this is these are 90 individuals and we're providing housing for them even though they're not defined as separate dwelling units under our code okay and then last i have given a lot of commentary where are those comments reflected in either the housing element or the the zoning how were your personal comments yes the the ones they're, that i they have may not over be. and over and over again they may not be. I mean, we've there's our job to this point has been to try to. I mean, what we've been focusing on is a housing element that passes state review. So, okay, so what has happened to our comments? We have them all. I mean, if there's a particular issue that you want changed in the draft housing element, please let us know right now. This is now is the time we have a complete housing element. If you if you have a list of comments that you want to know where they went or why we didn't put them in, I am more than happy to document that. But I, I mean, okay. we've been got we've gotten lots of comments from a huge range of people. This board has not voted to tell us make those changes or don't make that change. If when this board wants to do that, that is we will. And if you, you can do it at any point during this process, but there is no way to provide a housing element that meets everybody's comments and also meets state law. I, I will cover things in my comments. That's are my only questions. Thanks. Thank you, Board Member Hom. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is mainly a procedural question. Um, I, I know we've talked a lot about the housing element tonight. Uh, at the last meeting, we deferred to discussion on the proposed zoning code amendments. And um, I know there's a lot of public comments and I'm sure board had a lot of comments on, this, on the zoning code. So is tonight also the same meeting we would 
cover any comments or questions we have on the latest uh, zoning code amendments? We would love to get your comments on the zoning code amendments. Okay, okay. Um, part of my main question really does have to do with the zoning code. I have, I have some minor uh, questions on the housing element, which I think, by the way, I think it's a very good document, but I'll just cover that in the comments. My main question is the zoning code, which I'm a little confused about. Um, there's, I, I thought in the previous staff presentation that there was proposal, to, this has to do with the height limit on Park and Webster, where there was discussion of 45 feet or so along you know, the uh, historic uh, blocks. But then we talked about um, like a dumbbell kind of approach, higher density uh, to the north and maybe to the south. And um, I'm not seeing that reflected, unless I'm missing it, in the uh, latest version of the zoning code, where there it, I seems to suggest a uniform 60 foot uh, you know, height limit along both corridors. Is that a change? And if so, what, what came, how did that come about? I think, um, I think that is an, we should go back and, and just have that conversation with the board one more time. Um, we came out of that meeting hearing, at least my, and Alan, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the, my recollection is we came out of the last, the Webster post, the Webster Park Street zoning thing with direction from the board, keep it uniform. Don't change it every block. We should have a uniform requirement. I think there is a lot of conversation going on though in the community and we're still thinking about it internally and at the staff level. Each, both Park Street and Webster Street do sort of neatly, can sort of neatly be divided into sort of a, what I'll call historic portion and non-historic portion. Um, and those two portions don't have to be treated the same. And I think when you talk about a barbell approach, uh, is that what you're referring to? Like, yeah, yeah, limit yeah. changes on Park Street as you move from the historic core area to the non-historic area. Yeah, we can, I guess similarly, Webster Street, Webster. yeah. I got concept was closer to the two, you know, like yeah, by the college to be the 60 foot height limit or whatever it might've been. And then you had the staff had proposed increasing the height limit in the more, more, more historic portion from 40 to 45, uh, except 60 feet, you know, when it's kind of stepped back from the historic core area. And then the, the, the shopping center site, there was a lot of discussion about that, not, treating as a shopping center overlay, but applying maybe a, but a higher height limit for that shopping center site too. I, I, I guess I must've missed that we decided to do uniform 60 feet across the entire street. I think, yeah, I think our takeaway was that um, when, when we were talking about all of the varying height limits on Webster Street, there was some reference back to the existing Park Street height limit, which, which is kind of a uniform, very simple approach. And so mm -hmm. I think that was our takeaway to. Um, but we certainly, I, I think, that, you know, there's, a, there's still been a, there's been a lot of conversation about this since we published this most recent draft. And I think if the board especially if you think staff kind of misinterpreted the direction from the board. I think there is, you know, the idea of treating 
the sort of historic portions of the street different from the non-historic portions of the street. If that's something that the board feels comfortable with, um, uh, staff can certainly, you know, we're we're still considering that. And if we just didn't, I, I didn't get that clear sense that that's what the board was no, saying. Okay. It was your preference. I, there were a lot of different opinions being yeah, expressed. Yeah. So um, that, that that is something I think. I think that would make a lot of people that at least what we've been hearing from more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what it does though do, and it ties back to this question of the buffer. If you're, if you're limiting development opportunity in a, for a portion of a street, what does that do to your realistic capacity? And I think, you know, we can certainly, it's easy to redraft the zoning. So it's a slightly lower height limit in the historic area versus the non-historic area. Um, but then what we have to then do is go back and look at our site inventory much more clearly. Some of the good opportunity sites, particularly on Webster Street are in the historic core area. So that will cause us to have to rethink how many units we think we can get on those sites, which means the realistic capacity that we're we're expecting to get in Park Street and Webster Street, which is now pegged at 400 units, we might have to lower that number, which then means, you know, we have to make it up somewhere else. So those are the kind of the difficult yeah, yeah. adjustments we have just have to think about. Yeah. Um, no, I no, I do recall that, and I do agree that the proposal from the WABA folks seemed a little bit too granular or, you know, a little bit too, a little bit more simplified approach made, made sense. But I thought that the projection of units for that court or the 400 units with that staff came up with was predicated on the 45 foot proposed height limit. So that if rather than the 60, um, so that, so that the 60 actually might even increase the development potential or my yeah you know park street webster street is going to be it's tough like yeah, you know, I, we were, I was just reading some uh, 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 an analysis that was just came out of los angeles where they're looking at the adaptive reuse of commercial buildings for residential um and this and they were talking about how difficult that really is from a financial standpoint um hotels this article I was just reading this afternoon, like they were like, you know, the, the conversion of hotels to residential, of course, that's the easiest, most feasible changing buildings that were ex originally developed for non-residential use, much more difficult. Um, the other information that we're collecting and talking to, we're talking to property owners, we're talking to developers who, who redevelop sites like this. And, re and remember, a, uh, uh, a big site on Park Street and Webster Street is an acre. You know, the CVS site, the Walgreens site, the vast majority of these sites are a fraction of that size. Um, and what we're hearing from the development community is in this kind, and it's not just an Alameda thing, this is an Alameda, Oakland, East Bay. Like, you, you, you know, if you're talking new construction, you're talking, you probably need to get to four to five, some are saying six stories. That doesn't mean we have to do a six story height limit. It just means that if we bring our height limits down, I think we have to recognize that it's going to be less feasible to get new housing built, which means we just may not get as many units as we hope. The 400 is based on the six, on the essentially the 60 foot five story 
height limit. Um, that's what it's based on. Um, that you know, with the idea that if you allow for a five-story building, it's going to be a, a viable economically. Once you get down to three stories, four stories, what we're being told by the development community is, well, that's going to make it tough. That's going to make no, it tough. No, I realize just it's, it's challenging because the parcels are so small and they're buildings right next to each other, all that. So to me, 45 or 60 foot is going to be challenging uh, whatsoever, you know, yep. regardless. Anyway, that was kind of my primary question. I, you know, I have different, I have, you know, some opinions about that factor, but that was my primary question. I don't really have any major comment questions on the housing element. Okay. I mainly will cover that in my comments. Thank you, board member Hall. Um, Director Thomas, thank you for the summary and um, my fellow board members for their questions. Um, I have a few moving from broad to more specific. Um, when we submit to HCD our housing element, do we need to submit zoning revision at the same time? No, um, okay. we don't. Um, I, but I will point out just real quickly, the, if you read the programs, the programs are a reflection or a summary of what the zoning is we are we are proposing to do the zoning so over the next month i am we are anxious to hear people's comments on the zoning because i think we don't have to have the zoning done by the time we submit to hcd but if we're starting to think about like the like for Park Street Webster Street, hey, maybe we do want to bring the height limits down in the historic cores, and we understand there's a trade-off, so it's going to result in some changes. Maybe we have to do more housing somewhere else. Um, we want to make sure those programs are are reflective of our most current thinking. So, I think that's how that interplay will work over the next uh, month and a half. And at the last minute before we send it HCD, we'll adjust those programs to are sort of everybody's most current thinking about where, where we want to go. And when is the zoning revision scheduled to come back for action or are we going to have several additional study sessions on, on zoning uh, revision? What, what we were, in terms of the process, what we were thinking is um, over this next month, take comments on the housing element, the zoning amendments. Um, Including, after, include the zoning. Yeah, let's, I mean, it's, it, it's really one big bundle, right? It's, I think it's, for a lot of people, I think it, it really comes down to the zoning amendments. Like that's where the rubber meets the road. Let's get that right. And then um, I think the way we've been sort of thinking about it is get as much public comment on the package over the next month. Then, then, put the zoning aside for a minute, spend two to three weeks making the revisions to the housing element to reflect our most current thinking on the zoning and the most current, you know, and the community comments and planning board direction to ch for changes, get that off to HCD. They're gonna have it for three months. During those three months, I think, is the, a great opportunity for the planning board and the community to then dive back into the zoning, keep making those adjustments. I'm hoping that by at that point, we're fine tuning now because we've made some general, you know, sort of um, uh, commitments in our draft housing element that HCD is, is um, reviewing. But as everyone tells us, oh, there will be comments from HCD. 
<laughs> so we'll get comments back from HCD. So I think there's still opportunities to keep adjusting even after the HCD um, review comes in. Um, bottom line, I would I think our goal should be to get the zoning amendments where where the planning board wants them to be, where you are ready to recommend them to council, just as the HCD letter comes in. Then, but we don't recommend them to the council at that point. We see what HCD says. You focus on then change. What do we need to do to change the housing element to meet HCD certifi uh, certification? And that, of course, will influence what we those final adjustments to the zoning. So that you put you in the position, you the planning board in the position at the end of that step to then say, okay, city council, here's the housing element we think you should adopt because we think it'll meet the HCD requirements. And the accompanying zoning is now ready for you as well. And take the whole package, send the whole package up to them, hopefully in October. Thank you. And so um, my second question is, um, last time when we reviewed the zoning code concerning R1 to R6, we evaluated two paths. One is upzoning and the other one is overlay zone. And I think we made a decision and it looks like this current current zoning amendment still has that both path. We're still proceeding with both path, right? What we heard at the last meeting, you know, and it was a little bit like the Park Street Webster Street. I think we we were all sort of trying to figure this all out together. So it was not absolutely clear how to move forward. But what we staff left the meeting with was we presented it as, hey. Should we do just adjust the base zoning or should we do a transit overlay? And what we heard from the planning board was we're interested in a little bit of both. We think there's a combo here that should be worked out. Um, the draft zoning amendments that we have out right now for public review, uh, I don't think they're, I mean, they're a draft. And I think there's still some work to be done there. I think where based on the comments we've received so far, based on the continuing work that staff has done on this, I think we're starting to see the transit overlay district becoming, uh, causing some unintended consequences and some difficulties. We do still though think that proximity to, to key major transit lines is important. So. If I were to just to give a preview of where I think the next draft of the zoning is going, absent any further direction from the planning board or, or council, is a approach to take care of it in the base zoning, but have provisions in the base zoning that give bonuses or, or, or additional um, density or capacity to sites that are within a quarter mile of a trunk a major transit um, district. Um, so I think I think we still, we staff still have some work to, to do on that. Um, but it's been really helpful just even in the last two weeks to get, get people's reaction, get people's um, sort of first thoughts about what we've produced. Um, Thank you. And um, my other broad question is um, regardless of what height we set for, um, any zone, um, either Webster Street, Park Street, or CC zone. Um, if someone comes in with density bonus, they can essentially request waivers 
or concessions to override our high limitation, correct? If that limitation is preventing them from getting the bonus. Yes, that, that's my, that's right. my question. So doesn't matter what height we set, right? If we set at 40 feet and they want to come in with units <clears throat> with certain percentage of affordable housing, which qualifies them for state density bonus, then they can go higher than what is in our zoning code. That is yes. my, I just want to come from that. That is, and I think I just, and, and we had a really interesting conversation with the Historic Advisory Board last week about this, and we talked a lot about this. Um, and I think it, it may be helpful for members of the public when, when thinking about the state density bonus, it does allow for property owners and developers to request a waiver from the height limit to, to, to accommodate the bonus. So we were talking about partially Webster Street. The staff proposal is a five-story height limit, four stories of residential over one story of, of, of commercial. In the last 10 years, every single density bonus in Alameda, with the exception of one, and, pretty, and pretty much every single project has done a density bonus, has gotten a 20% density bonus. If you have four stories of residential, that's essentially one more story of residential. So uh, I think if, if we're talking five-story buildings on, on, on Park Street and Webster Street, if, if, if you want to know, well, what's the potential, what, how, many, how much height limit could be, could be waived as a result of state density bonus, you're probably talking about one more floor. Thank you. And um, more specific question um, on page seven um, uh, of the housing element, affordable housing fee only applies to commercial developments. That's but not residential projects, right? I just want to confirm. That's, that's right. That's okay. right. So Thank in you. Alameda, we um, for the benefit of the public, for in Alameda, uh, residential projects of of um, five or more units need to provide for. Uh, deed restricted affordable housing in the project. Um, if you're if you're a commercial project, you're not building commercial. You're not building residential. Commercial development also has to pay, has to contribute to affordable housing. Because and so, if a commercial development, they don't provide units. They provide a um, in lieu fee. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. That's all the questions I have, and I will save my comments to doing. Um, or common portion. Uh, right now, that's open up for public comments. Um, please raise your hand if you like to speak, and um, you have three minutes to share your comments. Artie? Yep. Uh, we have Karen Bay. Mute. Uh, thank you again. Um, so I, I just want to continue to support the effort um, to make the changes in terms of zoning amendments and heights and everything to, to do a, a, a conform a, a uniform um, zoning amendments for both Park and, and, and Webster Street. And I know we're talking about preserving the historic core, which I think is very important. Um, I love the historic core, um, but in terms of, um, for instance, the Neptune Plaza Shopping Center, um, 
that's not going to get the multifamily overlay, I think we should allow for higher heights and high opportunity uh, sites. Um, so just want to make sure I uh, continue to support that. Um, and then on um, page five of 45, uh, the retail. Um, I think I spoke on this the last time. It's very important to me. I, I, I remember we did some really hard work on the retail strategy. So because we discovered that we were losing 200, you know, there was a, a study that was $200 million in sales tax revenues uh, that, that we could lose if we did not reduce leakage. And so the purpose of that study was focused on how we can um, reduce leakage. And we were successful. And I'm concerned that if we allow for residential uses on the ground floor, that it, it, it gives the incentives to developers to not provide retail. And I think we've got some strategic areas that we wanna preserve retail. And then that's on the waterfront and that's the Northern waterfront, Alameda Point around the waterfront um, and, and, our, and our main streets. I, I, if we give it up, uh, we lose it forever. Um, and I, I, just, I just remember how hard we fought to, to reduce leakage. And as a result, we increased our sales tax revenues. So that's an important economic strategic plan. And, I think we need to consider <clears throat> if we decide to make any changes to that, that we should do it as part of a citywide retail strategy, not just as a one-time zoning amendment, because once it's there, it's, it's gone. And again, I, I can't tell you how hard we worked to, to, to reduce leakage and we were very successful. And again, our waterfronts, our main streets, um, those are our, economic strategic areas that we want to preserve retail. So um, thank you very much. <clears throat> thank you, Ms. Bay. Next speaker. We have Drew Abrams. Hi, good evening, planning board members. Uh, Drew Dara Abrams calling in from Calhoun Street on the East End, and I already had a chance to, a share, uh, to share some assorted comments by email, uh, but just want to echo three points by voice tonight. First, as always, a thank you to staff, planning board, uh, and a majority of city council for making a good faith effort on this. It should go without saying, but it doesn't, that it's worth doing this job well and I, for one, appreciate everyone doing this job well. Uh, second, please do consider how the R1 to R6 zones contribute towards this housing cycle, uh, both in unit counts and towards reaching affirmatively furthering fair housing goals. Uh, I appreciate Director Thomas's comments tonight, um, and I'm curious to see more about what a combination of changes to base zoning especially if it touches R1. I don't know if that's in the mix, but I hope it is. And additional capabilities for parcels that are within an easy walk of transit. 
but R1, it's the largest zone, has the largest number of parcels in town. I know it's a third rail, but um, I, for one, think it's worth engaging productively with how R1 can contribute towards the overall mix. Uh, and finally, it's genuinely exciting to see the zoning proposals for Park and uh, Webster come together over the last few months. Uh, if the city gets this right, there can really be even more vibrancy, density, walkability, modern retail and restaurant spaces um, in these transit-friendly business districts. Please do stick with the currently proposed height limits. Um, continue them north on Park, if, if not even raising them further on North Park. Uh, it's the street level details that matter the most. Um, the, the height limit is, I, 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 I think those are very valid comments. The height limit are what make the project possible. The ground floor is what makes the overall project, um, you know, meet, you know, bring something new and beneficial to the community. I think the ground floor is what we're gonna be focusing on in the long term uh, and the overall height uh, uh, will become a feature of the, the downtown just in the way that ask how many people that park in garages on Park Street. And um, I for one could not tell you if it's five or six stories. So anyways, thank you all for taking my comments tonight. Thank you, Mr. Dara Abrams. Um, next speaker. There are no more speakers. Um, cancel that. Oh. There's one more. Someone else has put up their hand. That's Christopher Buckley. Mr. Buckley. Christopher Buckley with Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. I need to see the timer clock. I don't see it on the screen. Um, so I'm going to start. Um, we sent a letter before getting the letter. First comment on scheduling. Um, after staff does its two week uh, revision based on after uh, May 9th, recommend this go back to the planning board and the city council to give it one more look before it gets sent to HCD. I'm going to go into our comments. Uh, we're very concerned about the massive upzoning of the residential areas. We don't think it's necessary. We think it's drastic and whole and an overkill. It's basically trying to achieve 270 units to meet the arena. And the, the ADU estimate we think is too low. And the estimate keeps jumping around. One document says 50 units per year, another says 60. We should really use the 79 as a starting point from last year. And we're on track so far this year to get at least that many. Uh, with 79 units you get, and you throw in the nine SB9 units per year, you get 88 per year. Um, by in eight years, you're, you're only falling 26 short or three units per year of the 270. It's not necessary to do such massive upzonings to get three more units per year. Uh, it's further compounded by the impact of the state density bonus law. If you upzone particularly unlimited density, every parcel will be eligible for state density bonus. That's what's on the table now for the transit overlay. Um, the expectation of a 20% bonus, we think that's underestimated. You look in Oakland and other places, we're seeing projects with 40%, 50%. Um, once 
density bonus gets going in Alameda, we think it's going to take off. It's more than 20% bonuses. And when this goes to HCD, we should not offer more than we need to in the first round. If we decide to back off later, it's going to be much more difficult. We need to make an objective um, proposal to HCD that doesn't shoot off all our powder at once. We need to keep some in reserve. Going to height limits, we reiterate our previous recommendations to keep the height limits at 40 feet in the historic portions of Park and Webster. That means south of Lincoln and Webster, south of Buena Vista on Park Street. Um, there was an image I had submitted. I was hoping to be on screen share. It's not, so but it's in our packets. You can look at I that. Will, I will go ahead and put that up. Thank you. Um, the current proposal has a setback proposal for upper floors that might be helpful, 15 feet. This shows a 60 foot tall building on Park Street next to McGee's. It's over 60 feet is overscaled, out of scale. You put that in all these vacant areas, the historic buildings be overwhelmed. You lose your sense of time and place. We also recommend uh, in lieu of to use an ADU amendment to get density rather than state density bonus law. Uh, you can get more units, it's affordable. You can even have some of them required to be affordable. I've run out of time, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Buckley. Do we have any more speakers? There are no speakers at this time. Thank you, that's closed public comment session. Um, now I'm gonna open up for board member comments. Board member T. Uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to start with the elephant-sized septic tank in the middle of our city charter. Um, on page 40 of the draft housing element, you know, we say that HCD says that Article 26 is preempted by state law. That's not actually what they say. They say it should be voided. They didn't say it is voided. And our city attorney concurs and that it can only be finally dealt with in court. So that's where I'm coming from for all my other comments. So just to set the stage. The, the neighborhood commercial, the, the stations was a surprise to me. Um, I would like to see that called out separately so we know how many units would potentially be coming from that because that's one where I'm not sure that we actually need to do that one. I am absolutely not in favor of putting the density into each one of the zones. As I have said repeatedly, for all residential parcels, they should be allowed by right to have four units, all parcels, R1, R6, every single parcel. That gives the fair housing the ability to get to these, uh, to be able to build workforce housing because these are gonna be by small units. They're going to be things that could be TIC'd. ADUs are not able to be TIC'd uh, if you follow the strict letter of the law. And I am definitely not in favor of those, those changes. I'm definitely in favor of saying all residential, you get four units per parcel. The um, the transit overlay, the you know 
a quarter mile is, is too far. Um, again, what I was looking at is enabling people to build on the high transit areas and every parcel that adjoins it should have seven units by right. With density bonus, it brings it to 10. That gives us along the transit affordable housing because they are over the five units, they will have to do affordable housing. The four units within the other areas that is below the level for inclusionary housing. So we could potentially be able to develop a lot more housing and affordable housing as a result. The accessory dwelling items within the draft, I am a huge proponent of ADUs, absolutely. Um, there's a comment here about continuing to waive development impact fees. That's actually, as I recall, required by state law, so we don't really have a choice. So putting it in there was kind of strange. Uh, what we don't list here is all of the really amazing ideas that we have in the zoning amendments for ADUs to really make ADUs a, a interesting way to increase our rental housing stock. And I'll get to that when we get into the zoning issues. Uh, there's a comment in here about eviction protection by June 2023, uh, just cause eviction. We have just cause eviction. So if it's something different than what we have today, it'd be good to say what you mean by that, as opposed to just cause. We have that today. Uh, our substantial rehabilitation program, as far as I've been able to find, is broken. The number of programs that are using it is not working well. We should be making these funds available to develop ADUs as well, which would then be Section 8 uh, required for 15 years. Uh, we should really be leveraging that, and we have not been. Under the Program 19, well, I don't know why we keep talking about compact fluorescent lights when LEDs are really the way the world has gone. They're less uh, environmentally impactful. So, you know, it, I'm always surprised when I see compact fluorescent lights listed. Uh, as I asked in the table one, I'd like to see that the corridor up zoning divided into two lines. Um, say, that, say that one again. I'm sorry to interrupt. Remember how I talked about that the stations to be separate from the other transit? It gets reflected in that table. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, on page 41, where we're reciting the history of SB9, it kind of left a lot out. You know, we had the hearing. And then what happened after that isn't listed here. You know, city council took action independent of what the planning board recommended. And I, that it's kind of weird that it's not here. That's, um, that's page 41, you said? Yes. Perfect, got it, got it. Um, by the way, when I talked to the substantial rehabilitation people, they would not fund ADUs. Uh, which was super sad. 
So moving on to the draft zoning. On page 15, and then you're gonna go like, what section is that on? That's all right. It's on the C1. We have a maximum residential density, none, but we don't specify a minimum. We do specify a minimum elsewhere. Why aren't we specifying a minimum here? Um, I am definitely uncertain about the heights for these. These are the stations. And really C1 is such a tiny number of places. And it's our stations that I, you know, I'm, I, in many respects, I'm, I, I lean towards leaving them out um, because they are the areas that have that. Definitely they should be getting that four units by right. They should be able to do that. Um, the community mixed use, which took me a little while to figure out. We're talking about the shopping center uh, combining zone. Uh, the only thing I wanted to be really clear on is the, the moving of density is you don't get to play dominoes. So you can't move it from A to B to C to D to E in order to get it to E. It really should be the adjacent parcel, not, oh, well, we moved this onto this one and now we're gonna move it from there to there, okay? That, that's, that was the thing I was talking about when this came forward to begin with, that I didn't wanna see that game go on. Um, on page 38, we crossed out community care facilities and just added residential senior. And then later we crossed out the community care facility entirely, which was more than just senior. So it seems like we lost something there. So please look at that because that's, that, I, I, I'm afraid that we unintentionally dropped something. Mm -hmm. uh, I already talked about the transit that I'd really like it to be seven units by right to every parcel on a transit route. Um, I love what you are talking about in terms of the changes to the ADU. And uh, it took me a little while to figure it out. And at the 16 foot height, and I was like, how are we gonna avoid, we should be able to avoid that and have it be taller because having a two story ADU is more space efficient, especially if you're doing like a duplex uh, of ADUs, but we do cover that later on in terms of you can go to 25 feet, which was great. Uh, I was really happy to see that. It would be really nice if we could do something that enabled like a stepped construction that didn't have as much of a setback. Um, I, when we talk about the required setbacks, but we don't do it if there's an existing accessory structure. It is silly that we are telling people, build a shed, tear it down, build an ADU. In order to one, get around the solar requirements for ADUs. And two, now you have an accessory 
building that you're tearing down and you can use its setbacks instead. So we should make it such that they don't have to do that. They can do what they need to do. Did that make sense, Andrew? Um, I think I'm a little confused. And Alan, you can jump in here. Yeah, I, I understand the comment, but I, I think that comes from state law that when you are converting an existing building, doesn't mean you not, could tear but it But in down. between, not, not the solar, but the other, which is the setbacks required. If that's come from state law, then I guess we have to continue to do the go ahead and build a shed that you're going to tear down. Yeah, that comes directly from state law. Okay, that's, that's sad because that just is a barrier. Um, the design standards for the ADUs, uh, oh, by the way, in, in section G for height exception, subsection five, it references subsection C, which no longer exists because we struck it out. Uh, so you should clean that up. The design standards, I, I always have a problem with the design standards that say it has to match the existing house um, because that's adding cost to the development of an ADU. And people are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to build an ADU. And it makes, we should really figure out how can we make that better? How can we make it such that it maybe is contemporary compatible versus matching the eave, the, the roofing, that type of thing. Um, can I just, just on that, on that comment, I think what we struggle with a little bit, um, I completely understand your point of view, objective standards that staff can interpret yes. and implement over the counter, just one staff member, one applicant, and having an having an argument about whether uh, it's fine if we have like a, a set of pre-approved I mean? designs for ADUs that yeah. are cheap um, that we view okay this the these sets are compatible with Mission these are compatible with Queen Anne these are yeah. compatible with uh, Italianate you know these are compatible with postmodern whatever I'm okay with that uh, when and, we start is that okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, I just wanted to point out sort of one of the, some of the things we have to be thinking about when we yep. create these things. Like if we can come up with a standard that's easy to implement and enforce without interpretation, then like you described, the sample, you know, the pre-approved designs, that's great. Um, yeah. But if somebody doesn't use a pre-approved design and they come in with something that, you know, their brother is a great architect and did this beautiful little house for their backyard, um, well, we then they don't, they don't match the objective standards that could come to the planning board. Yeah, that's true. Um, and depending on that, it, I mean, I would be voting for it because yeah, yeah. Uh, in the definitions, when we talk about accessory dwelling unit, uh, the definition is funky uh, because it says it has to be on the same parcel as a single family dwelling. Uh, and that's not true. Mm -hmm. You can have an ADU on a multifamily dwelling. That's true. Um, you can build it as part of a whole bunch of other things. There is a discrepancy between shared living and dwelling unit. So please look at that because yeah, a well, dwelling unit, well, you know, kitchen, bathing, sleeping for one yeah, family. Right. You know, but the, the shared living is private living quarters, could have shared kitchen, doesn't have to, 
may have shared activity space, doesn't have to, um, has no restrictions in terms of family. So you can imagine a dormitory, which is an example they have here, which is every floor is a different collection of a bedroom, maybe their own living room, their own bathroom, mm -hmm. maybe a kitchenette, a shared kitchen, shared common space. I, you know, those don't fit the definition of dwelling because it says family. Well, I, I just, can we just talk about this for just a minute? Sure. I think we're, we're, I think we may be talking past each other. Your, what you described as shared living is, is correct. It could be a dormitory kind of situation. Right. It could be a single room occupancy kind of situation. It could be, you know, um, I, you know, where, where you have a, a central kitchen and separate bedrooms for yep. unrelated yep. people. And potentially not fully shared living space. And potentially not full. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you'll, like, you'll have your private space. Is what yes. So yeah, like, but when we space. say dwelling unit, we specifically say design for occupancy by one family. That's right. So and we that's why see, they, they're different. They're totally different. Okay. Uh, they're totally different. And I think we need to go back and look at our definition. So it's very clear. If we're counting units, we count them in this way. We are looking for individual spaces that include kitchen, dining, and that's what a unit is. If you don't have a kitchen, you're not a unit. But would you're counting uh, the wellness center as more than units with kitchens. So, well, we are, and I think this is where I just, I, which I think we should. What we what we define as a unit for the purposes of de determining density in Alameda, for de determining whether a project is consistent with the local zoning in Alameda, I think we need to have a definition of unit, especially if we're going to have density requirements. We have to have a definition of unit. What we have done historically, and I don't think we're proposing any change here, is you might have a shared living situation where there's only one kitchen, but 20 different people living in this facility. We count that in Alameda as one unit. So for the purposes of determining density, for the purposes of this, um, um, we, we count it as a single unit. But they could, but, they go well, today, you can't, but they could have four kitchens with four groups of rooms associated with each kitchen. And we would count it as four units. Right, which today you can't do. But they should be because of Article Twenty Six. Yeah. We can't do oh, yeah. right. so. Okay, so that's so we just need to make sure our definitions are clear. And I think where it gets confusing is there are things like the wellness center which don't have individual kitchens in each room. But for the sake of the arena, we are at least going to try to make the case with HCD. Like, come on, you're going to give us credit for ninety units here, even though each one doesn't have a kitchen, right? I mean, these are ninety homeless people that we are housing permanently yeah. the, the you know i wanted to be clear that we're going to have to have a finding when we do this and i can see we are finding that allowing four units per residential parcel is required by state law to provide fair access to housing and opportunity zones i could see that finding the, the finding for what we have, I personally don't see 
for the more general state. So hopefully I've been very clear this tonight with the feedback for where I would like to see things going. And when it comes back, I will make such motions to amend it to do that. And just if I may, just, just to sort of everybody can, because you and I have had a couple conversations about this and I think it's what I've been thinking about since our conversations is what that means is we're saying the city of Alameda, if you have a parcel, it might be an acre. It might be half an acre. You're only getting four units. You're only getting four units. If And we're basically saying that we are not going to accept any densities higher than that on on a large lot, which is, it, it's a, just another way of, Except of, of we don't limiting have access. Huh? And I'm only talking residential. Mm -hmm. I'm talking R1 to R, R6. That's where I'm talking about. Yeah. Yep. I so am I, in favor of reducing the minimum lot size. Totally in favor of that. Uh, and I so, guess what is, I'm still, I think it's still a little bit confused. A couple things. One is every lot gets four units. So that does open up a lot of housing opportunities. That's not consistent with Article 26, right? No, but it is consistent with the requirement of state law to provide opportunity for fair housing throughout your area, as opposed to in specific hotspots. In terms of the high resource areas, mm -hmm. It provides it. It's a very direct line. And then there's the, but if somebody wants to do five units in their Victorian, they can't. Or six, they can't. Or seven, well, they can't. They could through ADUs. Unlimited ADUs. Within existing one space. More, one more ADU. Within their existing space, that change, which I loved, which is if you have existing space, go ahead and make as many ADUs as you want that are compliant with state code. So, and then the other piece of your proposal is if you are a parcel that fronts on a major transit line, you can get seven units. Right, and seven is Which, you will automatically get 35% density bonus because you're gonna have to provide one unit which will give you the 35% density bonus, which will bring you up to 10. Right. And, and, and then what we would have to estimate for HCD is given that we already allow a, a main unit plus two ADUs on all residential parcels now, we're essentially increasing that by one unit. We're saying you can have four plus one ADU. So that is an increase in what every property owner can do. And we'd have to estimate how many units we think that would, that slight increase in capacity would generate over eight years. Um, and then we would look at the relatively limited number of parcels that front on our major transit routes. It's not within a quarter mile. It's just literally the ones that are right on it and figure, make an estimate of how many of those parcels would redevelop or increase their capacity to seven. And then well, I think- Well, you've already right. given an example of the market on, um, was it Santa Clara, Lincoln? Santa Clara, was it that wanted to change what they did? 
Oh, Lincoln Market on on Lincoln. Oh, it was Lincoln. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was a that was a station. Um, and, and you know, that's another so, interesting example. Yeah, I, there are variations on this, but it's also easier for Alamedans to say, oh, I can build four parcels versus, oh, it's 30 or 60 per acre, which is, they have to do all sorts of calculations to figure out what that means. And what we found from the research on SB10, a lot of this is driven by SB10, is SB10 said, hey, you know, the nice thing about SB10, it actually generates a lot of affordable housing. That was part of the push for why they were doing it, is that these small number of units, 10, uh, actually did yield a lot more affordable housing. I'm not, are you, I'm just curious, do you know of any cities that have actually <coughs> adopted I, SB10? I don't know. This, this was part of their arguments for yeah. SB10. I mean, I imagine that Drew probably could send us that information. So thank you. Thank no, you. This is all super helpful. It's look, are we, we're not done. I mean, we, we still have a lot of work to do and it's, yeah. we've got, you know, um, so I think this is all, uh, these are really super helpful and, uh, well, I guess you're just the first. To yeah. Buy. Well, so, I appreciate the board. <laughs> Uh, patience in my going through my long list of commentary. And thank you. Other board member comments? Thank you, board member Teague. Board member Hong? You're muted. I can't hear you. Board member Hong, you're muted. Oh, shoot. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'll go through my comments. Uh, first of all, I, I think the housing element document is an excellent document. You know, really good start. I know what the just just because I've been involved in another effort, but I, I know what's involved, and it's a very programmatic set of requirements from HCD. So I think there's no apologies that this is a hundred. This is a two hundred page document. You know, some cities there aren't even much longer than that. So. Uh, but it's, I think it's a wonderful first attempt. I know HCD is likely to come back with significant comments that, that staff will bring back to the planning board for further dissertation and discussion uh, based on, on what we get back. But so it'll be interesting to see uh, what HCD says. So with that in mind, I think my comments are just very initial. Um, I, I think the, the big piece that was new to me was the fair housing assessment. And I think that that's really well done. I particularly like the fact, and I think HCD will require this anyway, how you link the uh, very specifically the fair housing um, contributing factors to the specific program actions. I think that is a really good move and hopefully HCD will see that as very positive connection. Uh, having said that, I think one of the, concerns I have is I didn't see a strong relationship between some of the fair housing policies and the geographical distribution of the housing units. And, and I'm saying that not knowing exactly what HCD is going to say, but from my, my 
my information is that there's a lot of discussion about the distribution of the units where there's where there's some documented inequities or differences in demographics between like for instance west alameda and east alameda like bay farm island that you know except for the harbor bay shopping center you know there's really not any residential units being proposed there you know and i know we're not proposing anything i just say now on harbor bay club because i see there's still comments about that um but but is, is a good start here? Here's some of my really kind of basic questions and I'll just go through them real quick. Um, there's discussion about the house, uh, inclusionary housing ordinance. And I thought that we've had a fair number of discussion at the board level about seeing what we can do to kind of perhaps beef up the inclusionary zoning ordinance, maybe somehow increase very low uh, income units versus low income units. So. I think that could also be, as I mentioned before, a way, an incentive where you talk about the overlay districts, which I think is a, a good concept. That could be an incentive, especially to, for allowing an increase in the housing units along uh, for parcels that are adjacent or in close proximity to the defined transit corridors. Uh, on page 29, I don't know, I think this is just a typo. But uh, where you say quantified, this is the table on page 29, where we say quantified objectives for city of Alameda programs. I think you mean the 2023 20, to 31 period. It says 2015 to 23. So oh. just, yeah, I think mean, that's just, but I think I believe that's what it was. I looked staring at it. I, I, I figured it out. I think you meant to be the next cycle. Um, Let's see, some other just comments. On page um, D18, this is, has to do with the fair housing assessment. Uh, the table's D1, I, and it goes on with the green, yellow, orange, um, and the text describes what these different colors mean, but it's hard to kind of really understand the chart without an without a uh, table of contents or something that describes easily what the different colors mean without having to refer back to the text. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, anyway, those are my comments on the housing element. Uh, I wanted to kind of go to the um, zoning code amendments. And I had reviewed the zoning code amendments about two weeks ago when this item was on the agenda. So some of my comments that I have down here, they may have changed from the version that you sent us for this meeting. So it's based on my review of the version like two weeks ago. And some of this has to respond to some of the questions that staff raised. You know, what does the planning board think about this? Uh, but on, on section D2, there's a question about 50% of the frontage um, for office and medical use. And it, it seems that depending on the parcel depth, it would vary by parcel. So I'm thinking, is it, does it make more sense to just come up with a uniform, you know, 150 feet or 200 feet uh, so that it doesn't vary if you happen to have a very narrow parcel or a very deep parcel. Um, D.4B, you asked about restaurants being a permitted use um, uh, in District C1. 
I'm thinking that in these neighborhood districts where parking is likely to be a, a big concern, you might not want to allow restaurants in the C1 district that you know outright permitted use just because you know it always comes up with the lack of parking. And certainly in the other commercial districts, that makes perfect sense that they're outright by right uses. On D4H, um, there was a question about, I know this is going to come up constantly. <laughs> I'm just joking. Upholstery shops, uh, whether that should be an outright permitted use. It seems that upholstery shops, because of manufacturing, like manufacturing that might be involved, may, may not be feasible to allow as an outright permitted use along a park in Webster. Uh, on D6, there's a, oh, there was a, and I've encountered this, so I just bring this up. There's just a discussion about allowing generators and outright permitted use. That might be problematic if they happen to be located next to a residential use, because I've encountered complaints about generators uh, where they're near residential. Uh, for the North Parks, and, this, and these comments, by the way, have to do with the zoning ordinance amendments in uh, districts, the C1 district. Uh, just a couple of comments regarding the North Park Street district, uh, which is the north of Lincoln area. Um, the use table mentions that for adaptive reuse, you know, any use can go in to the building, which in a way, it makes a lot of sense because you're trying to encourage adaptive reuse. But I'm given that the district, however, is kind of mixture of residential and some other, you, you know, there might be some uses, not that it's going to happen, like heavy manufacturing that you're not going to necessarily want to allow by right, right next to a residential user's safety health issues. So I just bring that up. And um, and that was in the North Park? Yeah, there was a no, it was in the North Park Street District. It makes a lot, you know, like I said, the intent is there, but I'm thinking if someone, worst case scenario, someone comes in with a, you know, like using yeah, yeah, yeah. hazard, hazardous materials is right next to residential use. You might want to allow some type, type of discretionary well, review process. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah. Go, we'll go back yeah. and look at that. It doesn't I, have to be a use permit. I'm just kind of mentioning it. I, also, I believe that appears under the uh, building form and site design standard, and which is separate from the use tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we could clarify. Yeah, you might clarify that. that. Just something that I thought. These are getting down to little details, but it, they were like questions that, that you raised in your text. Mm -hmm. um, there's also didn't see a height limit proposed for the North Park Street district, unless I missed it. I mean, there's height limits specified for all the districts, but I didn't see one for the North Park Street district. I'm not necessarily advocating a height limit, but I just didn't see it. So it just seems like it's not consistent with how we have defined it with for the other districts. Um, then a comment regarding the commercial mixed use multifamily district. I know we talked about, and I totally get why we're proposing the 100, uh, 100 unit per acre kind of density. But given that we're talking about eliminating density, you know, everywhere else in the city, I guess my question is why are we then retaining a density limit in the commercial mixed use district? It seems like if we set the height limit at 65 feet, that like the other districts would kind of be the kind of the urban, the form-based yep. code requirement. 
And then it kind of gets away from, I think, what Council Member Teague was raising about this shifting of density bonus, you know, to, you know. If I, it, I, I'm really glad you asked that. This is something that's been, I've been asking myself that question. We And it's, it's really this simple. It was the first zoning district yeah, that we I, drafted. And we were thinking and we... We're working with density and we decided, well, 100 units a acre is about right, but it might need to be yeah. a little bit more. And we came up with this fancy system of transferring density. And then we moved on to Park Street and Webster Street and some other places. And that's it was when we moved on. And then we started thinking, wait a second. What we care about is the form. What we care about is the height. How many units are inside that building? As long as it meets the height and the form, we don't care. Let's get rid of density. So I, I do think it's if 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 we're if if we as a community are comfortable with that approach and do feel that's the right approach i do think hey, we should probably go back and, and clean yeah. up clean up the 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 shopping center one because it's the same basic principle um, yeah and it and avoids I, the need for that whole transfer process yeah and i know it could be misconstrued that suddenly we're we're just eliminating you know density in the shopping centers um when and really, if we're not going to be applying, you know, densities elsewhere. Why we suddenly yeah. have it here? You know, uh, I think the sixty-foot height limit makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. uh, for these shopping center sites. Having said that, I'll kind of weigh my opinion regarding Park Street and Webster Street. To me, those streets are very different on you know the middle blocks versus the outer blocks. So. From an urban design standpoint, you know, it, it, something tells me you should treat those sections differently um, rather than uniform height. And I, I totally get why we want housing along that corridor. It makes a lot of sense. I understand economic uh, challenges to it also, but I guess from an urban design standpoint, just something tells me that, you know, somehow there's, need to recognize that that historic district is an important district. I, I'm totally was fine with the staff recommendation to kind of increase the height a little bit for the reasons that staff articulated, but somehow recognizing the historic character of those middle blocks seem important to me. Um, so I would kind of support taking another look at coming up with a two tier type of mm -hmm. height system along both streets doesn't have to be as granular block by block because I think that's getting a little bit too much. In fact, quite honestly, I think the some of the outer areas, you know, doesn't need to have ground floor retail. Could be all residential in my mind, like you know, because those blocks aren't that strongly retail. But at the same time, really preserving that those historic blocks for retail which is what should be the primary character is really important. Um, and then final, final comment, uh, Andrew, I don't have a solution for it, but in reviewing the two options for the overlay district and the other option, it, it seemed like it could be a little confusing to implement. You know, you, you're raising, you're changing the zoning standards in the base district, district, and then you have different standards for the overlay districts. Um, I like your suggestion of maybe trying to use the base districts as, as defining the zoning for the R districts.
but then allowing incentives for parcels that are close to the corridor. Mm -hmm. I do agree with council with board member Teeth that a quarter mile might be too much because when you look at the map, it's pretty much you know you know right. over fifty percent of the art districts. So perhaps increasing the the zoning for those art districts, but then providing incentives for additional development. I don't know whether an eighth of a yeah. mile or you know a thousand feet or whatever is the right number, but um, it the current proposal conceptually makes a lot of sense to me, but it just seems a little complicated to implement for staff. And and if if it's confusing for staff, it'd be particularly confusing for you know developers and homeowners too. Yeah. No, thank so you those, very much for those comments and yeah, those, those just. Are, those last comments about the overlay zone over residential and the base zoning, um, very much along the same lines that we were hearing from, and the comments on Park Street and Webster Street, uh, very similar comments coming from the Historic Preservation um, Board, uh, the Historic Advisory Board. They also, you know, that how you implement the transit oriented district, just more, it, it generates a, a, a number of, unintended consequences that we're starting to rethink. And so I, yeah. I do think, okay. I think we can do a better, uh, uh, the next draft will be better and we'll yeah. recognize and I, know we, I know we have but, time because it, yeah. we're not having, have, HCD is not reviewing our zoning ordinance. Of no. only, they're no. only reviewing the housing element. So we have a little bit more time to, to kind of think through how we want to treat the zoning. Anyway, Great. those are my Great. comments, otherwise, I think this is an excellent first start. We'll see. What, I'm interested to see what HCD says. <laughs> so are we. So are we. Yeah. Thank you, Board Member Hong. Any other board comments? Okay. Um, I have a few. First of all, um, Director Thomas and staff, thank you for this Herculean effort. Um, putting out this um, yet another draft. And um, I'm gonna share my comments again from macro to micro. Um, I echo board member Curtis' comments of providing a list, at least a summary of changes. So it's easier for um, not only board members, but also community, the community to follow. Second, um, there are several workshops that we are holding um, to solicit community input it will be very helpful to use these, this process to build community trust. So any comments that we hear, you're gonna hear opposing comments, not just from the public, but also in this board. Uh, in your future iteration, it'll be good just to have a list of the comments that we receive and how it is either incorporated, partially incorporated or rejected. So everyone feel like their voice are heard and has been considered. Um, so that would be a great forum to continue to build a, a, a relationship with our public to receive further comments. Because the last thing we want them to hear that, okay, we provided comments, but it didn't go anywhere. Um, another general comment is that um, when it comes to, uh, and again, I'm not gonna comment on whether we should have density or not density, no density, but if we decide as a board to eliminate and as a city to eliminate density, consider how that works with state density bonus law. 
because now there's no density. Yeah, and how yeah. do you... um, if I may just briefly, sure. I mean, we the cities, there are other cities, the city of Berkeley doesn't have residential densities in a number of their uh, zoning districts. So they, they have, they dealt with this question. It essentially turns into a, a floor area um, okay. density. So, so, so are. Yeah, so basically, yeah, if you have four floors of residential and you need a 20% density bonus, they calculate the, you know. Into the, a FAR. Yeah, and they can also translate the number of units that you have. So you submit, as we do in Alameda, we require the project to submit a bait, what they call the base plan. Show us mm -hmm. the plan that you want to build. Oh, it's 100 units. It's 50 studios and 50 one-bedroom housing units. Okay, and it's four stories. Got it. Oh, but you want a density bonus. Okay. They can Understood. translate, so it, it's definitely doable, um, and it's, and Thank other you. cities are doing it. Thank you. And um, in terms of the um, sh share living, um, thank you for clarifying that definition in terms of how we calculate density. Um, if we decided to go that route, but when it comes to RENA compliance, I want to advocate to count every single room uh, for that number. Um, okay. And in terms of um, preference between upzoning base district versus um, transit overlay, I agree with um, AAPS's recommendation. Um, transit overlay is a little bit challenging to implement and hard to just, um, just navigate through. So I'm leaning towards the um, be clear on what the base di district is and also provide incentives for upzoning along the transit corridor if positive. I mean. Yep. Increased density. Yeah. Um, so that's a get into. Okay. Another general comment is um, it's important to spell out the challenges that we are facing as a city in terms of the conflict between Article 26 and the state law. At the same time, in that um, explanation of history, be mindful not to be politically charged or mindful of the tone. So don't come across as <laughs> That's, That's not my just strength. My, I think we should always <laughs> remain neutral in explaining the challenges that we're facing at the city. The document should remain that way. That is just my general recommendation. If you don't want to know the specifics, no. we can talk offline. Yeah, I think, I think it would be helpful to have you not maybe offline point out some of the places i mean there, yeah. there's a number of different authors here i mean this is not just written by one person this is multiple. so of course I, I think it's really helpful to have somebody look at it we need those, to remain non-biased in well, our public documents okay just say the I, state I, the facts right okay okay now that's to get to the specifics um Page 11, we have, um, I would like to see a tie. There's a map of the old redlining map. Um, the map does not have a title, page 11. And I will uh -huh. see a label being associated yes. with a map. And also on the dialog box, it says the map shown at the right, which is not true, is the map on top of it. Yeah. So that's correct the caption on that. Um, page 13, um, uh, last paragraph, H-26, 
in terms of education and provide opportunity for community to dialogue and learn about root causes of homelessness. I feel like this paragraph is a little bit vague and non-committal. Um, I feel like the community needs to know available resources of, to address um, for people experiencing homelessness other than calling the police department or 911. I think as a general public needs to know that resources available. Page 15, reference appendix, appendix E, table E3. The title of the table is different. On um, the paragraph, it calls a housing site inventory, but on the actual table is called something different. So please um, coordinate that and clarify that reference. Page 16, um, as I stated before, um, right now we listed open space um, requirement for all districts as 120 square feet per unit. Um, I think I mentioned this earlier, I'm, at least that's what I'm seeing on the market right now for urban projects and that, we can debate whether we consider Alameda as an urban or suburban. Um, we're seeing on the market is a hundred um, square feet for a hundred square foot for market rate and 85 for affordable housing. I'm just going to put it out there again. You can no, let I, me know. I, if yeah, we, we actually um, did take note of that after the last meeting. And I, that's um, when we started thinking about this, getting rid of the transit overlay altogether, but but thinking about what we could do extra for parcels that are adjacent to the transit corridor, that was one of the things that was is on our list of, you know, how do we make it easier for people right on a transit corridor to, um, to, to build housing? Um, and, and so reducing the open space requirement from 120 to, to the numbers that you cited was one of our thoughts along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, okay, thank you. And on page 19, this is just kind of a, a, a question on the approach. Um, and maybe I am remembering things incorrectly, but I remember one of the arguments for eliminating density or upzoning the zones is avoid developers continuing use density bonus to kind of avoid some of the requirements that us as the city is asking. And yet on page 19, we listed on the bullet point number two under program eight, saying promote the, promote the use of density bonus ordinance. So if we feel like we're upzoning so we can discourage or incentivize developers to comply and without enacting density bonus to waive out of things. And yet over here in our document, we're saying that we want to promote density bonus or ordinance. So I feel like uh, <laughs> these are two conflicting approaches. Yeah, that is, yeah that's that, clear. That is very, I, thank you for bringing that to our attention. I didn't notice that but what it is you're right it two things are going on here we're having a debate in alameda about what a shame it is that every single project is essentially forced to do density bonus which allows them to waive certain requirements that we kind of care about 
The one that's mm -hmm. most irksome to me is the waiving of the universal design requirements. Um, for example, um, other people are more concerned about people waiving height limits, but in, as we've discussed, the language that you just read, support the use of density bonus is language that was added into the programs by our housing consultants. Because HCD is always looking for that language. From the state's perspective, cities should be encouraging density bonuses. Um, so it, it's an interesting conflict that we're gonna have to resolve in this draft before we send it along. Um, mm -hmm. We have to kind of come to grips with, I mean, from the state's perspective, density bonuses are a good thing. We're getting more housing, you're getting more affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And we have a, here in Alameda, we have a, a less clear attitude about density bonus projects. In fact, what we're trying to do is create a system where people don't feel the need to apply for density bonuses because mm -hmm. we've structured the zoning so that they don't need to. Right, right. So just kind of be mindful of how that yep. can be perceived. Um, page 26, and I agree with um, board member T's comment about the compact fluorescent light. When I first read it, I said, what year are we? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's, I apologize. That's a little That's all right. And I also want to, um, in, in program number 19, we also talk about rebate programs for Energy Star refrigerators. I would like to make it broader for Energy Star appliances. So it can be washer dryers, et cetera not just the refrigerators. Um, and perhaps I have missed it, um, solar rebates. Uh, maybe it's in here somewhere, I just missed it. Um, want to provide a recommendation. Um, Appendix C, table C3, table C3. Um, has to do with um, race and ethnicity ethnicity of Alameda's um, residents, I would like to see a comparison to Alameda County. Um, again, I believe I've asked that before and if you don't feel like it's necessary, just tell me why it's not necessary. And that would be fine. Um, appendix C. That. That's easy. Yeah, Appendix C again, page C11. Um, I noticed that we have about almost 1,000 units of um, vacancy in our rental pool that is just vacant for no reason and uh, or the reasons that we don't know of. And I wonder if we should enact similar to what San Francisco is proposing a vacancy tax um, to encourage landlords to put the units back into the rental or, or um, you know, back into circulation. So if you want to hold your units vacant for no reason, you need to pay a tax. It's just something I would like yeah. to propose. Interesting, yep. Mm -hmm. um, appendix C, again, um, page C30, what did I say there? Oh, thank you for listing a list of um, affordable housing um, pre-qualified um, partners with housing authority. Um, I think we should make sure that 
the public knows the process and how to get pre-qualified. And that is widely available. Um, I echo board member Hong's comments regarding Appendix D table, um, page D 17 and 18. The colors uh, providing a legend would be very helpful. So you don't have to refer back to the text on what um, each color meant. I can kind of, I understand the hierarchy between yellow, red, no, orange, but between green and blue, <laughs> that baffles me a little bit. So I have to go back to the text and see. I thought green was good, but yeah, maybe no, blue is better. I'm not quite sure. That's, that's, give me the citation again. It's which table on what page? Um, table D1 table on D1 page Yeah, table D1 is on page 17, D17 and D18. Okay, got it. Thank you. And actually that table currently is um, bifurcated on straddling two pages. I think it would be helpful to combine it into one page. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, in terms of the zoning, I can provide specific zoning feedback separately. Um, but for now, I think um, I noticed there are several references on schools, and yeah, we say public and private. I don't know if there are other schools that's neither public nor private, if it's K through eight, uh, if you want to say that is state accredited or any kind of, is there other school that's neither private nor public? Yeah, I think we should probably reconsider that language because I yeah. think our basic principle is a school is a school. Exactly. No who runs so it. then there's not necessarily just clean, you know, right. clean up some of the language. So um, did I miss anything? Yeah, I think that's all I have for now. Again, this is a huge effort and thank you so much for your patience and to listening to everyone's comments. Remember Hong. Thank you. Um, actually, um, uh, uh, Vice Chair Ruiz kind of prompted a, a comment that I forgot to mention. Um, I seem to, it has to do with sustainability. I happen to seem to recall that we had a discussion about including policies regarding sustainability. I, and I see there are some, um, but I, I don't know. I don't have no idea whether House, you know, HCD requires it, but I, I know a lot of cities have include discussion of sustainability policies and because it, it does have also an equity fair housing uh, issue associated with it. So I just raised that, whether that might be another area we might want to define some policies in the program for. And, so I just and, throw that and, out there. And you're, and you're talking about, um, when, I, when you talk about sustainability policies as they relate to the housing element, I, I'm assuming you're talking about things like uh, green building standards. Yeah, yeah. Energy efficiency, energy conservation, yeah. those kinds yeah, of things. all those kind of things, which are reflected in the general plan. Yeah, you know, but we should um, no. But, but can to, we do to the degree that it can relate to housing element uh, construction and also fair housing issues? Yeah. So I just throw that out there. I know some cities have attacked yeah, yeah, that. No, I'm not sure it's a requirement of HCD, but I think they like seeing it. Well, I and I think it would be good for the housing element. It also ties the housing element back to the other elements of the general plan, like our climate change and conservation element, you know, which mm -hmm. has some of this in our land use element. So I like, from my perspective, I like the idea of, you know, it's sort of, a, it's, a, it's a reminder 
and we use those cross references to yeah. for a reader of the housing element to also understand that yeah. the housing element is not just addressing housing but sustainability equity as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Board Member Hom. Um, yeah, kind of to elaborate follow up on what board member Holland mentioned. I've seen several other cities housing element drafts that uh, mentioned um, environmental threats, groundwater threats and liquefaction threats. And that's all tied into our housing element as well as from a fair housing and equity standpoint. <laughs> so just continue to focus on that. Uh, one other comment on the zoning um, code that I, I just noticed. Um, and I forgot to mention to you, when we talk about the um, North Park District and under the table, it says MP and then dash different zonings. It's, when I first read that, I said, not permitted. Then, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> MP abbreviation equals not permitted. Yeah. <laughs> so just be mindful of how we use that abbreviate things on the table yeah. that can cause confusion. Absolutely. Um, so I, that's all I have now. Oh. Is that is that everyone? Um, I think that's everyone. I, I can I just I, I'm just I uh, the Park Street Webster Street conversation. I just this one issue, and then I'll let you all go home. I, am I sensing a uh, sort of a, a loose consensus here that the how that the uh, the the height limits on Park Street and Webster Street should recognize the difference between the historic portion of the street and the non-historic portion of the street. Um, that we, like Webster Street could have two different height limits, so a height limit for the historic portion and a, a, and a height limit that could be higher for the non-historic. And, and similarly on Park Street, there's the historic portion is sort of the south end up to, up to Lincoln and the north Park Street is the sort of non-historic section. Is I, I heard a couple of you say that that was probably the right way to go is is that the way at least the four of you are team. feeling or member uh, team i i would be okay if we this just makes it harder on you but if we stepped it away from the historic section mm -hmm. it could be even within the same parcel stepping away so that there is a a height setback adjoining the historic section mm -hmm. so it so as opposed to just an abrupt step up, is that what yes. you're saying? Any other board member comments? Yeah, I, I agree with what uh, board member T just said. You know, it's not just along the street, it could be, you know, a distance away from the street too. The other, the other interesting comment that one of you mentioned was this idea that also, as and it's mostly a park street where you have all the side streets, where the district spreads along the side streets, like down Santa Clara, the ground floor commercial is might be is not as critical as as the yeah. front of the, the parcels fronting right on Park Street Webster Street. Um, I'm just thinking, like especially if we adjust the height limits on those side streets, but relieve you know bring the height down a floor, but relieve the limitations on ground floor. You still the overall capacity from a housing perspective doesn't change significantly, right? Yeah, and I and I thought that's what staff original amendments actually called for a little bit more permissive for ground floor retail. I mean, ground floor residential 
if it's step back a certain distance yep. from Parker Webster on the side streets. Okay, no, this okay, is so, super helpful. Um, ready for my comments? Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> please, please. So um, first of all, Webster, Webster Street is different than Park Street. The fact that Park Street does have a historic um, status uh, is a historic district and Webster, Webster isn't. There's no historic designation on Webster Street. There's a perceived definition, but there's not a recognized mm -hmm. historic district. So with that said, um, I'm, I'm gonna straight out says that anything less than right now, not just four stories, okay? Four, eight. I'm seeing the market, we're pushing eight stories of wood frame. That's a five stories over three levels of podium. That's what is making it financially penciling out in this market. So we can ride all we want. Anything, I just have a hard time seeing anything less than 60 feet get constructed. We will be counting those same thing, same units again next cycle. That's just how the, how the inflation, the construction market is 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 going um so with that said i feel like park street should be treated different than webster street and i think webster street we should just have a uniform height because mainly because it does not have a nationally state or federally recognized historic status so i'm leaning for yeah. 60 feet like you have recommended but on, on Webster, uh, yeah, on Webster. No, it's it's a it's a it's a tough it's tough decision because that's a, you mean you put your I mean you you've you've you put your finger right on on the key issue here, which is it's easy to keep the height limits low because you, of you're not you know, and for and for good reasons like oh we're trying to mm -hmm. keep things the same we actually are uncomfortable with change in this area. Well, so then we shouldn't be too surprised if nothing changes. Nothing changes. <laughs> You're not gonna increase the foot traffic. You're yeah. not going to increase the business um, revenue. The density yeah. is not there to support and, that. And it's, it, that is, I mean, that is the crux of this entire housing element process, especially when we talk about Park Street, Webster Street and the neighborhoods where, Oh, we want housing and we want more housing and we need more housing, but we don't want anything to change. And that that's, it, it's, we can try to preserve as much as we can, but if we preserve so much that we don't actually allow anything to happen, that's, then we haven't achieved what we're trying to achieve. Um, and it also just makes what we're trying to create here is a housing element that is not going to start having problems within a year or two. Because remember, mm -hmm. we have to report every year to the state how we're doing. And the reporting process has also gotten much more rigid. Um, and we should fully expect the state of California after two or three years, if we're not producing the housing we thought we would or we hoped we would, to have to start changing things and dealing with those. So it's it's a really, a, it's a tough, it's a tough exercise and a tough planning process that we're in the midst of here. Um, but, but I'll, I'll just kind of chime in. But there's a lot of economic challenges for that.
corridor. I just don't think 15 to 60 will make will suddenly spur economic development. I think like what a board member Ruiz said, you know, it would take combining parcels to create like a half acre lot and, and increasing it to allow an eight story building. And there's just so many economics that would prevent that from happening. So there's a lot of challenges beyond just the fact that the height limit is 45 from 60 feet. <clears throat> And, and it doesn't matter, right? Somebody can come in with density bonus. Yeah, it, well, that's matter, true, too. Say, yeah, that's, doesn't matter what we put I know, down. exactly. Well, that's the other point, too. No, but to me, it's just entirely. an urban, to me, it's more of the urban design policy statement. And that's not entirely true. I mean, if you have a three-story height limit, I'm not, you know, if you need five stories to make it economically feasible and the height limit's three, density bonus is not going to get you there. It's well, not going to get you there. I mean, so... It, I did. I mean, the other approach here is to say, hey, we are, what is more important to us right now is preserving the sort of character of these areas. And we're nervous about density bonus and we're nervous about too much development. So we're just going to bring down our expectation for the area. Yeah. I mean, the housing element doesn't have to project 400 units on Parks and Webster Street. Yeah. We can move those units somewhere else and say just the state, hey, no, we, we're adjusting the, the zoning here. We're allowing multifamily. We're allowing changing in density, but we're leaving the height limits low. But we, you know what? We're only hoping to get about 100 units. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. we can do I, that. You know, and I think that, that if you show 60, the state will ask, prove to us that you're going to yep. be able to consider historically you haven't had any development along those corridors. No, I think that's why we are, you know, I mean, the, it, no. I've, yeah. talked it, yeah. I've talked enough. You know what the what the challenge <laughs> yeah. is. We'll we'll oh, yeah. we'll just keep working this through. I think the, just the last thought is it. We have to sort of get it as good as we can, as close as we can, yeah. and then we need to send it off to the state. And we have to. It, yeah. We'll adjust yeah. again once yeah. we've heard from HCE. Yeah. yeah. So it we're never going to get it all figured out in one night. Mm -hmm. yeah. Remember Curtis. Yeah, just just one last word on this. You know, we've gone through a tremendous exercise in terms of the economics of building these things and how many units can we can get and how does it fit the footprint and what the density is. Has anybody really looked at the feasibility of being able to market these things? I mean, if you look at the layout, not you're not only looking at at the the number of units you can put into a small area but you're also looking at the infrastructure to support all of this stuff. And it's great. I mean, we, you know, Matt, you know, it's a puzzle. You fit, on, you fit the units on the puzzle, but the real answer to this thing is, can these be marketed at a price that people can afford? And that's the challenge. It's not, it's not the building. The building is half of it. Being able to market it is the thing that gets you the financing and gets the project successful. And that's the thing that you got to look at in terms of what the demand is for these at certain price points. And that's that's the other side of it that nobody has mentioned. And, and I'm mentioning it just because we've gone through a great in intellectual exercise. But the bottom line is you gotta be able to market these things in order for the developer to be successful. I've seen both sides of it and the other side is pretty bitter. That's, no, that's, we, we uh, staff agrees with you wholeheartedly. And we actually have been spending a a fair amount of time and we'll be spending more time with developers talking about these these streets and and that's when i said earlier you know we have been talking about developers about 
a, a number of sites on Park Street and Webster Street, people who build housing. And they're like, yeah, we probably need five or six stories to make it pencil. I mean, exactly what board member Ruiz was saying. I mean, literally exactly what she was saying. So, you know, I think it's, if we don't raise height limits, will we get some housing built? For sure. I hope some. Question is how much? Um, and it may be very little, very, very little. Anyway, my two cents worth. Yeah. I mean, we approved a three-story building on at, on the Taylor lot on Webster Street. You know, we approved that five years ago. That's the same lot that you just had the use permit hearing about. It's still vacant. The they, you know, it was it was approved at 26 units to the acre, two, three stories, two two stories of housing. They're not moving forward with it. They can't, it doesn't work. It doesn't make financial sense. And it's too, it's and every other developer is like, yeah, of course it doesn't. I could tell you that, you know, this is not because the property owner is something wrong with him. It's the, the numbers don't work. Well, Teresa had the, Teresa had the fortitude to, Tell the king he had no clothes on. You know that's the bottom line. Is that, that you know? Wait, who's the king clothes. here? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know it's getting late. It's too late. So yeah. That's um, if there are no further comments, that's close the um, this item number seven C. Moving on to agenda items eight A, draft meeting minutes for uh, February twenty. Actually, yeah, yeah I, we have to skip that because they don't have a quorum for it. Oh, okay. We don't have a quorum. Let's Thank continue you. that to the next meeting. Thank Just you. one real quick, quick comment on that. If you could add my name, I was at that meeting. Um, so, I missed, yeah. I had to think about it, too. I had to see that I actually had comments to remember that I was actually at that meeting. <laughs> okay. Okay, and then let's move on to item number nine A, um, staff communications, planning, building, transportation department reaches and actions and, and decisions. Anybody would like to, no? No further comments, no call to review. Excellent, let's close that agenda item. Moving on to oral reports. Um, staff? So yeah, your next meeting, um... April 25th is being canceled at this time. And uh, your next meeting would be May 9th, which is also the deadline for um, comments on the draft housing element. So that's currently what we have planned for that meeting. Um, there may be a couple of other items, but um, we'll, we still have time to um, work that agenda out. Thank you. Um, do we have any written communications? Uh, there were written communications submitted for the um, items for the agenda tonight. Um, other than that, um, no other written communications. Thank you. Agenda number 11, um, board communications. Board member Hom. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, Alan, I won't be able to attend the May 9th um, planning board meeting. Just wanted to let you know. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And I would like to let the board know that um, um, I have submitted uh, Alameda's um, 
ADU policy to Urban Land Institute for um, a leadership award. I've nominated our policy. And we'll see, that's with the help of um, Director Thomas in submitting that application. So I want to let you know um, that. And also want to let everyone know that there is um, housing on the Bay conference uh, housing the Bay Conference coming up, and I will send information out to Director Thomas and uh, um, staff um, Alan to distribute to the um, to the board members if we wish to attend. There is a public um, sector discount. Board Member Hong. Yeah, thank thank you, uh, Vice Chair Ruiz. You actually prompted another thought in my mind. Talk about awards. I really think the Alameda's general plan is very deserving of an APA, American Planning Association Award, because I think it's a really excellent cutting edge document. And I know the deadline is coming up for Northern Section Awards and it takes a little bit of time, but I just want to put a plug that I think the general plan is very deserving for that recognition, if you're able to submit an application on time. Thank you, Board Member Helm. Um, I'll follow up with you on, on the deadline and the information. Yeah. Thank you. Um, seeing that there are no further board of communications, let's move on to oral communications. Anyone may address the board on a topic not on the agenda under this item by submitting a speaker inf speaker's information slip subject to the three-minute time limit. Do we have any um, speaker information slip. There's no public comment at this time. Thank you. That closed um, oral communications. With that said, I will um, adjourn the meeting and thank you everyone for your patience. Good night. Thank Good you. Night, everybody. Good night. Be safe. Bye.